With our last marathon just having been attempted a few days ago, it will be two weeks by the time the episode is released, the feeling of disappointment and questioning the training and everything else that happened is still fresh. Looking back at the training, we used a marathon plan that was fairly high mileage. It peaked at 138 kilometers per week, and it was created by Pete Fitzinger and Scott Douglas. So well thought out in terms of having enough rest days after hard trainings and having a mix of different types of training, along with midweek medium long runs uh, that accompanied the long runs each week. Since it was our third go at the plan, we made some modifications based on things we learned from our other two attempts. We started training at our current fitness paces and not paces calculated based on our aspired finish time. We broke up some of the long lactate thresholds of marathon pace runs into intervals so that we could complete them at the proper paces. Because in the past, we would complete them sometimes, you know, a little bit slow at the end because we just couldn't hold that pace long enough. We removed the second tune-up race planned for two weeks prior to the marathon because in the past it left me flat on the marathon start line both times that we did it. Not sure about Alan, but he also decided... I absolutely agreed with that. Perfect. With all that, I still didn't reach my goal. So now what? Well, maybe the next step is to try some of the things that are being proposed in today's book. Hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books for runners, about runners, and by runners to help you decide if you would like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running or maybe inspire you to try something new. My name is Liz, and with my co-host, Alan, we're going to talk with author Andrew Snow about his book, Run Elite. Run Elite covers all aspects of high-level marathon training. Although the reference is mostly about marathon running throughout the book, the information provided is applicable to longer and shorter distances. The book consists of 22 chapters divided into three sections. Roughly the three sections would be mindset, elite training, and then special workouts and hacks. Just to pique your interest, some of the unique unique things that we can see in this book, how an unreasonable belief in yourself can help you perform better. Oh, interesting stuff. Andrew has a, 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 a specific model, which he calls the triphasic model of to training. Um, I'm sure we'll hear about that. The surprising performance benefits of cold exposure. Um, Liz probably isn't going to like that much. I wasn't happy to read girl. about that. I really like hot weather. Um, special workouts like alternation runs and sarcomere runs. Ooh, some interesting terminology. We're going to find out a bit more about that. So let me tell you a little bit about Andrew before we introduce him, bring him on stage, so to speak. Um, Andrew Snow is a performance and mindset coach for distance, distance runners and founder of Run Elite, which the book is named after, I guess, a unique program for guiding runners to outstanding improvements in performance from the 5K to the ultramarathon distance. Through his unique system of combined mindset tactics on world-class training science, Oh, I'm looking forward to this already. He holds a degree in exercise physiology, a master's degree in biomechanics, and has trained extensively under the Tony Robbins Master University System for creating rapid life change. With 27 years of competitive running experience, Andrew has achieved a conference title on the track, 
multiple finishes in the Boston Marathon, and 2013 hung up his road shoes to pursue trail ultra running, where he's won many races and has completed several races over 100 miles, including the iconic uh, Tahoe, I guess that's Lake Tahoe, 200-mile endurance run. So welcome to the to the show, Andrew. Hey, thank you for having me. It's nice to oh, be here with you, too. We'll launch you in with the usual first question, the icebreaker question. So what prompted you to write this book, Run Elite? Yeah, um, I'll give you the, the sort of full answer with that. If you want me to slow it down at all, just let me know. But yeah, this no is really the book that I wish I had throughout my running career. I think that a lot of runners get they start to get caught up in feeling ambitious and feeling like they can really do a lot if they put their mind to it and really train hard. And so we often get this mentality of, I call it Rocky mentality, where we think that if we put more work in, we'll get an equivalent amount out. And that leads to the way that a lot of runners tend to train. They focus on mileage, they focus on hard running and expect that they can just do that and do that and do that and get better and better and better. And this is not what I've found elites do. And this is not what my clients have done. And this is not what has worked well for me. I was frustrated for a lot of my running career in high school and college, trying to run hard and not really getting the results that I wanted. So what I've, there's really two things that I found and I wanted to write this book to give readers what they want and what they need. And I found that they're different things. So what I think a lot of runners want is to know what kind of training to do. Tell me what workouts to do, how to structure my running. And so that's the second section of this book, which is about half of the book. And I really do lay out for you a structure of training where you can basically uh, model elite training techniques. And of course, maybe you're not running the mileage or the paces that the elites are running or even the frequency that they're running, but we can take the principles that they're using and model them for our own training and really debunk some of the things that had held me back. And I think hold a lot of runners back a bunch of myths, training to, to maximize VO2 max, training to maximize the lactate threshold. It's not that these things don't matter, but we place a too high of importance on them and they're not what elites focus on. So I wanted to be able to give a training structure that is completely personalized, personalizable yeah, for the reader. And second is we lead the book with mindset because nothing is going to happen unless we work on mindset. And what I found is that mindset is a misnomer almost is very misunderstood thinking that mindset is if you go to most runners and ask them, uh, do they need help with their mindset or their training? A lot of times they're going to say, I'm good with my mindset. Just tell me what to do. And there's this idea that if we're in a race and it really matters, that we'll be able to push, that we'll be able to summon the fury and really push through our like mental limitations in the race. But that's not what I call mindset, because I believe that most serious runners believe that they can do that. Would you agree? Like even for yourselves, when it counts, yeah. I will be able to push and I'll be tough. So yeah. that's not the distinguishing factor between an elite and their sub elite counterparts. But what is, is what I call mindset is what leads up to the race day. How do you execute on your life? What are your lifestyle habits, your diet, your sleep, what you prioritize? How do you fit your training so that it fits your family lifestyle, your work, your finances, the lifestyle that you really want. And that is mindset because it starts, you know, if you want to run your PR race 12 months from now, you better be able to run that PR before the gun goes off when you're on the starting line, but you better be able to run it when you wake up that morning too. And maybe a week before, a month before, a year before it kind of, it starts now. And so I tell this, and this isn't just a, 
uh, a woo-woo kind of new age thing. What I do in the book is I, I try to give stories, tangible stories from yeah. elite runners who we all know and love from Olympics past and currently as well, but also runners like you and I uh, who are doing extraordinary things and listen to their stories and have them tell you that it was their mindset, their training stayed the same, but their mind is what changed. And so this is really the why I wrote this book, because there's a lot of running books out there that talk about the training science and the training structure, but that doesn't matter if you don't have the driving force behind it, if you don't follow through with it. And ultimately, the ultimate failure, I believe, is to train really hard, get the time on the clock that you want, and not be fulfilled by it. Because the only reason anybody wants anything, I say this in the book somewhere in the opening chapters, the only reason we want anything in our running or anywhere else is because we'll think we'll feel a certain way when we get it. And so if we go for the time, but not the reason why we were, we really want that time, once we get it, what will it now give us? If we don't know what that is and pursue that, then kind of who cares if you get the time on the clock? We'd like to say, well, just give me the time on the clock and I'll be happy. But I found it's not true because we always want the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And if it doesn't lead to a fulfillment, it doesn't really matter. So mindset first, training structure really matters, but not if it's and not if it's not fueled by who you're becoming and the satisfaction you have in your life. And then finally, I couldn't resist but to put a third section in there of hacks that are really well known in other sports, high level sports, NFL, NBA, U.S. military, high performance um, athletic endeavors. But it hasn't really trickled down to the running community. And so I share a couple of hacks there. Some runners are using these. And I try to do the best I can to share the stories about how these hacks can be used specifically for running and really accelerate your progress. But I call them special workouts because they don't matter either if you haven't done the foundational work. So step one, two, and three. And I try to bring the reader through that order in order to give a breakthrough in performance. So let's start with step one, um, because you, you like that's even the first chapter talks about, you know, the great Eliud Kipchoge. And, you know, we all know that he is big on mindset. Um, and you tell a great story in the book about um, how he himself said from one race to the next where, you know, he, you know, performed at from one like the sub two hour marathon to the next sub two hour marathon attempt. He he said that the only thing that changed was was his mindset. It wasn't his training, um, and so like I think a lot of us maybe heard that. But I'm kind of wondering how how do you coach someone to become that? Because I I coach a couple mm -hmm. of athletes, and it seems like some of them are very good at like they prioritize their running in a way that's like it's a lifestyle where, you know, if they're going to engage in strength training, they want to know, well, what kind of strength training should I do that will help my running? Not just like, oh, I really want to like do, I don't know. Uh, like some kind of boot camp class over the summer or whatever the case is. Whereas like, you know, other athletes are a bit more like that. They're like, oh, I just want to, I do everything, but then I really want to perform well at this race. And so they, they don't like, they have a hard time sort of, I guess, channeling all their energy in the same direction. And, and for me, I'm kind of at a loss as to how to teach that. Yeah, just if, yeah. if I could interrupt just before you answer, Andrew, and just personalize that a little bit for us because Liz and I just did together a three-hour marathon attempt, a sub-three-hour marathon attempt two days ago. Okay, it'll be two. It'll be in a, a couple of weeks by the time this airs. Um, and yeah. we were on the line, and we'd done a, a fantastic uh, race preparation. 
But I think if you'd asked us both, are you going to run sub three hours marathon? Are you going to run that now? We would probably not have had the mindset of I'm 100% convinced in my own mind that that's going to get delivered. It's we would have probably said we've done good training. There's no reason why not if we have a good day and uh, things go well for us and we feel the right feeling in our body. Yes, it's possible. But we wouldn't have said 100% yes. 100% it's getting done. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this, it's it. done. We we and, and to that extent, we're missing, having read your book, I think we're missing something in our mindset. Or maybe we're not. So maybe you can tell us. <laughs> well, in order to know, like there's something inherent in the question that you're asking and it says there's something missing. And if you believe that there's something missing, then you can't have it. So this com- this is very subtle. This is like, um, you know, dare I go into the law of attraction a bit here, but let's go there. Because if you acknowledge to yourself that you want something, then subconsciously you're telling yourself that you don't have it. You want a million dollars, you want the sub three hour marathon, but if you want any of those things, you only want it because you don't yet have it. And so deep down, you have, your identity is that you don't have that thing. And so you're sure going to give your best. And at that race, you probably gave it your best, but you didn't have an identity of being whatever, a 258 marathoner, because oftentimes we want the evidence. It makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. I'll believe it when I see it. What about UFOs? Do you believe? Well, I'll believe it when I see the flying saucer. Okay. Um, but if you want to improve anything in your life, so think of a, someone who sets a world record, like Kipchoge, when you broke a marathon world record, right? Or any world record. By definition, not only is it a PR, it, no human has ever done it. And so to even go for it, there has to be a belief that they can do it. Otherwise, you're not going to pace it to be in the range when you come down to 400 meters to go. If you're 30 seconds behind, you don't have it. So there needs to be a belief that you can do it with, despite any evidence whatsoever that it is true. And that's what I would call applied faith. So in the question of saying, what am I missing? I would tell you, you're probably not missing anything, but a lot of people end up getting in their own way. Oftentimes, and the reasons we have to go really deep here, we we could do it if you like, but oftentimes with my clients, we spend an hour or so just digging down on this. So let me, I'm just trying to give you the cliff notes here that the purpose of training is not to increase our aerobic capacity and our muscular strength. The purpose of training is to arrive at the starting line with certainty that you can achieve whatever goal it is. Now that goal could be a time on the clock and oftentimes it is, but I urge people to not just look at the time on the clock because it's really, what's the difference between a three hour flat O2 and a 259, whatever. It's the difference between a pebble in the road or a carbon fiber shoe, right? So not just the time on the clock, but what is the goal? Why do you want that? Because I'll now feel and it's different for everybody. I'll feel successful. I'll feel like the runners who I work with, most of them are over 40. Average age is 47, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And oftentimes it's a belief starts to creep in that, uh-oh, now's the time to do it because I ain't getting any younger. And now's my time where I'm just, just keep getting slower. And so they want to prove to themselves that even at my age, I can keep getting better. And if they can do that, that's success regardless of the time on the clock. So focusing on what is really wanted beyond the time on the clock is really important because things can happen. You can have a headwind that just screws up your race or God forbid, we remember what happened at Boston a decade ago uh, where Mm. a bomb went off and people who were surely there were people behind that 
who were on pace for a massive PR, but they were never able to finish. And maybe that was their one race and they flew from Tokyo and they saved up their money for a year and they're never going to come back possibly. And so what a shame it would be if their success, if their fulfillment was robbed from them because they didn't get the time on the clock, but how you, they could define success in a different way. And so defining success in that way, other than the time on the clock, what it gives you is really important. And we often don't like to do it because it's like, yeah, yeah, but I want the time on the clock. And we forget often <laughs> that by pursuing becoming the kind of person who naturally has that time on the clock, you get the time on the clock as well. Like Kipchoge, he, okay, at the press conference the day before he broke two hours, he was also asked, Kipchoge, what happens if you don't break two hours? Is there a plan B? Is there another race? Will you do it again the next day? And he didn't even answer the question really. He had his hands in this nice little steeple and he smiled and he said that there is no plan B. This is done. I'm doing it tomorrow. And like, if, if my creator wills it to be differently, I guess I'll take it in stride and deal with it then. But there is no plan B. And let's not forget that, yes, the plan was to break two, but not really. That's kind of the marketing behind it. That wasn't his plan. His plan was to show that no human is limited. And if you listen to him then and now, even at the Berlin Marathon, he says, I'm running, I'm doing this to show that no human is limited. And he's like a philanthropist through his running. And for that reason, I think we love him for that reason, not just because his time's on the clock, but because of who mm -hmm. he is. But how do you think Kipchoge himself feels? Like at that breaking two, when he did it at the Ineos, his wife was there and his wife had never been to any of his races, but he brought his family in for this because it was more than the time on the clock. They weren't there for his Olympic golds or his world records, but they were there for this because the purpose of this wasn't the Olympic gold, it was to show no human is limited. And so when we tap into that driving force, the time almost becomes secondary. So I'll bring it all back to the purpose of training is to toe the line with absolute certainty that you will achieve whatever goal it is. Yeah, I, I guess I will just ask like, so how um, do you train someone to do that? So you're working with an yeah. athlete, let's say that athlete um, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take an example from my own athletes, but, um, or we could take us, I don't know, Alan, do you want to take our example? But I was just going to say, so, um, so let's say I have an athlete that, um, was a, like a university runner. And so she was running certain very fast times for the 5k. Now she's having a hard time going sub 20 minutes. So, um, I think there might be something going on where she gets in her own way. Actually, I highly suspect it because she can run a 10K almost at the same pace as she's running her 5K races. So so there's something going on there. And how do I get her out of her own way? Like, like how would I how would I start? Like first step, step number one. Well, because she's not here, uh, I wouldn't coach like this because we can make some assumptions about what she might need, but we really okay. don't know without her here. So for example, her nutrition her sleep, what's going on at home, emotional distress. What else is more important to her in her life? Maybe nothing, but maybe her grades, maybe her family, maybe her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there's something we don't even know about that she doesn't even want to share. And we can never know unless she's here. So this is a very individual thing, but if she's getting in her own way, she would know it. She would know it consciously or at least subconsciously. And we can hear that through the words that she uses. So do you recall in the book, the uh, I talk about something that I learned from Tony Robbins, which is um, called the triad. And the triad is what determines how you feel. And there's three things that, that determine how we feel. So with your, um, with your runner here, 
if she feels, I mean, what emotions might she say she feels in result to her not being able to break the 20? What might she say? Um, it depends. Is she frustrated? So, is she disappointed? Is she yes. So she's, she's usually very disappointed. Um, yeah. she's kind of a little bit in disbelief most of the time, you know, because she's, she's sort of like, oh, I can't believe that, you know, for example, last year I was at this point and this year I'm at this point. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I feel like I can jump in, jump in right there. So there's two things for her. Okay. I'm going to come back to the triad, but I, I think I hear a little bit what's going on. It's what you focus on. So what we focus on and what we believe are going to determine whether we've been successful or not, because is a, you two were going for a sub three. Yeah. So had mm -hmm. you run a 255, would you have considered that success? Yes. Okay. But take Kipchoge and if he ran a 255, would he consider that success? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> if you were racing at full tilt and he ran a 255, it probably for him, it probably means, uh oh, what happened? I'm burnt out. End of my career. An hour slower than I'm capable of. I'm losing my sponsorships. I better go to the hospital. But for <laughs> a lot of runners, 255 would be I'm over the moon. It's faster than I even than I ever thought possible. It's the same time on the clock. It's a human being running the same time. One is lit up by it over the moon and one of them better go to the hospital. Life is over. Uh oh. <laughs> by the same time. So it's not the workouts and it's not the time. If there's there's two, right? Let's take them one at a time. It's our beliefs and our focus. So let's let's talk about focus. If you you can always focus on what there is to that, that went wrong. So missing the time and for your girl here, she's missing, she's not even breaking 20. She feels disappointed. It's a disbelief. And these things are true. She's running, you know, slow for her, what her standard is. She's running slow. She might feel burnt out. And these are all true. But, you know, we could also choose, it sounds cheap until you do it, that we can count our blessings too. Because you can also find no BS, right? We don't want to lie to ourselves here, but you can also mm -hmm. find what it is that's working really well. Maybe you can find a training metric that's going really well. Well, I have more training days this year than I ever have before. I'm a more mature as a runner with my pacing than I ever have before. I have these brand new shoes that will take 6% off of my time. I have the best coach I've ever had in my life. I'm really at a time in my life where I can focus on school and running because I don't because I have scholarships and student loans and when, I don't have to worry about work right now. Um, I have a family who loves me. I have a boyfriend who loves me. I have free food from the cafeteria. Oh my goodness. I have the best <laughs> facilities that a university can offer. I can cross train all I want. I have sports medicine team and you can count your blessings and they can go as deep as you want. You can gratitude, for example, gratitude, love, and joy. These emotions are incompatible with disbelief, disappointment, um, failure. They're incompatible. So in a moment where she's feeling disappointed, if she could feel grateful, not even for her running, because maybe that's a tall order. Maybe she's not grateful for her running in that moment, but mm -hmm. if she could feel grateful for the roof over her head or that her mother loves her or anything actually focus on that and not just think about it, but feel it. Then as you're feeling that, the disappointment goes away until you go back and pick it back up. And then it's really there. So your focus will determine how you feel. Now, mm. is, is it okay if we, if we go a little bit um, not completely PC here, like a little bit? Sure. Uh, okay. Um, so someone might, let's say someone's going to have uh, an, an intimate encounter. We'll call it that with their partner. And in that moment where they're going to climax, they may not be thinking about their IT band friction syndrome or the fact that they lost that race until 10 minutes go by and they go, you know, later on, and then they pick it back up again. What happened? It's not a problem 
missing the 20 minute barrier, missing the three hour barrier for her or for you or for anybody Mm -hmm. isn't the problem. But when we focus on it and create an emotion out of it, that feels like what sucks. And the only reason it feels bad is because second part, focus and then belief. So if we have a belief about what it means, then it starts to hurt. So if we believe that we're washed up or we believe that it's unfair because the universe owed us something, then it downward, downward, downward spiral. But you can also have a belief that no one can coach this within you. It can just be presented to you and you can choose to ad- adapt it to your life or not. But there's a belief that I've found to be really useful in my own life. And a lot of my clients use this is that everything is always working out for me. Everything is always working out for me. You don't have to believe it. It doesn't have to be true or not true. But if you were to believe it, as I do, that everything is always working out for you because whatever your belief that supports that is, then no matter what, look, let me tell you a little story here about one of my runners, Karen, who's 64 years old. She runs about a marathon every, she's in the book as well. She runs about a marathon every month, two of her marathons ago, about two months ago. She was, um, it was in California somewhere. Um, she was running through this tunnel and she fell and she smashed her knee into the ground and it was bleeding and it really hurt. And she was down on the ground for like 30 seconds and it, it really sucked. She got back up and then she was limping. She was able to finish the race. And for that last part of the race, she was thinking, this isn't fair. This sucks. I'm going to lose my time. She, she already had her BQ, but she wanted to go faster to lock in that BQ, you know? And she was going slower and slower. There's blood. Her knee hurt. She didn't want to do damage to herself. It sucked. She crossed the finish line. She got her medal. And she's walking over to the athlete's village. And right where she's going to go, over to this tree, this big branch falls out of the tree and s- smashes onto the ground. Apparently a big one a devastating one that had she been there, this is where she was going to the shade. Had she been there, this giant branch would have fallen on her. And so I asked her, Karen, is it possible that you, that someone's looking out for you, that when you fell and hurt your knee, it got you to cross the finish line 30 seconds slower than you otherwise would have. And had you not done that, you'd be dead or crippled or I had a really bad day right now. And so it was actually a good thing that you smashed your knee into the ground. And she said, yes. And so if you miss your time, what does it mean? Sucks that you missed your time, but maybe it'll highlight to you the thing that you neglected to do. Maybe your diet could have been better. Maybe you could have paced it. Maybe you ran a positive split and you knew you should have run a negative split. And next time you'll go out even more intelligently or whatever it is. Maybe you got too competitive with this person. You get it. There's a thousand things mm-hmm. it could be, but it's up to you to decide if it was a failure or everything's working out for me. What do I do now with it? And when we tap into that, there is no failure. So if your girl is missing 20, it's an opportunity for her to change something, to give up running and do something else or take a rest because she's pushing too hard for 18 months in a row or get a new strategy, go back to base training, et cetera. Oh, that's good. That's good. So for us, I guess, Alan, we'll have to look at our recent 306 and see um, how everything is working out for us because we've learned something from it. Um, I think one of the things that we have learned up to this point is, um, seek joy in your running um find the joy and and we found that easy to do and we've we're getting better and better at doing training blocks with mounds of pleasure and enthusiasm and and joy Mm -hmm. Um, and and to that extent if you don't if you don't achieve your running goal on race day it doesn't subtract from that 12 weeks of of you know i couldn't think of having a better person to train with you know more fun more joy and just my physical ability and development and um, all of that is, is banked and can't mm-hmm. be taken away. Um, so what you said here is you said gratitude. 
joy, fun, and physical ability. Would you say that regardless of the time on the clock, if you felt like you were grateful for your training and your ability to train and who you're training with, you felt like the training block and the race itself were fun. You felt joy in the process itself and you felt you were maximizing your physical ability. If you had those things, but missed your time on the clock, would you call that a success or a failure? I'd call it a success apart from the time on the clock. Okay. <laughs> what if what if you hit the time on the clock? What if you ran a 255, but let's take those things away. Maybe it costs you um, quality time. With You're talking about training with Liz? Did mm -hmm. I understand you right? Yeah, so we what were if it training costs yeah. What if it cost you the kind of training you had to do for whatever reason, it cost you being grateful for training with her, maybe for whatever reason. It also wasn't fun because you had to do something you didn't want to do. Maybe it cost you something at work or with your health and you were getting sick and you, you didn't enjoy the process, but yeah. you sure hit 255. Would that be a success or failure? Failure. So that's proof, right? No, actually, you know what? I'm just going to like uh, come in here and uh, state a fact is that every PR that I've run has been off of like very underwhelming training cycles where either I was injured or I was like hanging off the back of the pack, like just struggling for the whole training cycle or I go, it, it's, it's, it's really strange because every PR and I'm only talking marathon because all the other distances, they seem to line up. Uh, well, not half marathons. I don't do very many of those, but 5k, 10k, you know, you do training. It kind of indicates you're getting fitter. You go to the race and you run a great 5k or 10k marathons for me have been the complete opposite. I do a fantastic training cycle like the one we just did where I felt like invincible. You know, we were doing like long runs and medium long runs and we were doing like uh, lactate threshold intervals and I was hitting the paces that I wanted to and like I felt really great and I was recovering from all the training. And then I come to race day and it's like, well, I didn't even run a personal best. But yet my last personal best, I went to um, uh, like- Georgia. Uh, no, it was, um, it was actually Toronto in 2019. It was a personal best. I broke all the rules, first of all, prior to race day. But even before I got on the start line, I mean, I wasn't training for the marathon specifically. We had done a multi-day stage race um, in British Columbia, which was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it ended up being uh, 160 kilometers over five days. And then so it was a trail race so we had spent all summer doing our long runs in the trails on the weekend and the rest of the week we would just do like training with the club and wasn't focused at all figured I got to get this thing done and then I'll do like five week training for this for the marathon gotcha. but then gotcha. we got back I was tired so I took like a week like kind of easy and so hardly any training for the marathon got done and gotcha. I got on the line I the day before I bought new shoes that I wore for the race like it, everything that you're not supposed to do I did it all and mm -hmm. I ran a personal best and that was the last personal best I ran <laughs> and since then I've had mm -hmm. some like great training buildups like Alan and I have tried this training program three times now where you know some some tries have been less successful this last summer has been like i think it was it was a success like our training was a success but mm -hmm. our marathon wasn't so it's like kind of a mystery so there's a couple of beliefs that i think um will help you here are you okay if i help you with this bit? oh yeah go ahead yes yeah. okay so you have <laughs> we'll, we'll get back you, to you you're, <laughs> you already you already have a belief you already have a belief that will suit you really well 
Um, it's in there because you said it. You said a couple of things. All the, I did all the things I shouldn't have done. You got new shoes right before the race. Well, who says you shouldn't get new shoes before the race? Runner's World Magazine. I mean, this that anecdote goes back to when shoes were made of leather and you had to break them in. We don't have to break in shoes right now. They, if they fit properly and you have a foot-shaped toe box, which I'm a big fan of, but it has a mesh upper. If it's the same model shoe you've been running in, who says you can't have a new pair of shoes? I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but it's a belief that could be true, could not. Mm. And you're, you found evidence against that former belief. You also said you were running long and you were only running on the trail. Then you took a week off and you really only had like four weeks to turn up for a race. This is absurd. How could you possibly PR with only four weeks? But you, but you did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. So you could use that as a belief to shift. You see how that like uh, conflicts with former beliefs you had about training? And which one's right? Because you've run PRs mm. off of one way, but you also did them off of breaking those old ways. And so like what belief might you, I don't know, but what belief might you take away from the story you told me about the one you just told me when you were running long and on trails, four weeks, new shoes, and then PR'd. What's a belief that would be useful for you to take from that and apply to your life now and to your training now that you maybe have not yet applied for this last marathon cycle? Um, which on the spot a little bit, but I like it. I yeah, (laughs) I, I guess that I, you can't get it wrong by the way. Well, I guess I, I guess like the big thing that stands out is, um, in the marathon, it seems like I don't get any proof in my training that I'm able to do it on race day. Um, because I didn't have any proof in my training and I did it on race day. And then sometimes I do have proof in my training and I don't do it on race day because that happened in the spring actually. (laughs) Yeah. And so how maybe, I would maybe the trail training is 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 good for you. The longer, slower distances with um, sparing your muscles by running on uneven surfaces versus you know asphalt. So less 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 road and and, and concrete training and more easy surfaces. There's all sorts of things you could maybe take from that. Yeah, there's a. I'm tempted to use myself as a story here, but instead let me use one that's in the book in the. The introduction, I talk about uh, Alex, who had a 252 mar- uh, 253 marathon at Boston, fast year. It was the year of the tailwind as well with those world records. So it was a good time. But he retired from marathoning and he got into ultras and he trained exclusively on trails. But he really worked on his weaknesses, which were um, hill climbing and uh, volume and like being on trails was getting the technical aspect as well. He worked on that for about a year and Essentially, he PR'd all of his distances, but he PR'd his marathon. So he ran that 253 at Boston mm-hmm. with a tailwind. And like two years later, he broke his marathon PR in a 50-miler when he went through the marathon split in a 50-miler. Wow. So, I mean, how the heck does that happen? But he changed his training and he was running more volume, slower, with a lot more hills. And the hills, that kind of was like a backdoor way into pace training. So if we were to talk, we're talking about mindset a lot here, we can talk about training Mm -hmm. as well, but him getting on the, on the inclines was a way for him to develop his fast twitch fibers. So he was doing a lot of base training without even knowing it. And just off of that, with no specific training for a marathon PR in the marathon by a lot, because like it was, like I said, it was during a 50 miler. So Mm -hmm. maybe perhaps you experienced a little bit of the same thing you've been working on. Now, look, maybe running on the roads and doing marathon pace and intervals, maybe that is more impactful overall. But the fact is that you had already maxed that out to a degree. And so your your weakness might have been running slower and building that aerobic engine a little bit better with, with uh, developing the small subtleties in the muscles. Maybe that had been relatively neglected. And because you worked on that, 
your what used to be a weakness became a strength and you were able to run well. That could be another reason why. And oftentimes we neglect, this is a huge thing with a lot of runners is that they neglect raw speed development and they neglect truly easy running. And mm-hmm. that's what I call base training. And most of the time runners find themselves almost ubiquitously. I do a lot of, a lot of these calls with people and we're assessing their training and I can say like more than 90% of the time, like really almost all the time. Um, runners are stuck in a perpetual, what I would call phase two or support training, meaning that they're never really truly running easy and they're never truly running fast. They're doing intervals, tempo run and easy runs that aren't really easy enough with not the volume that they otherwise could be at. And that's virtually everybody. And they stay there all the time. So they never have that base phase. They never truly have a peaking phase. It's just phase two all the time, all the time, all the time. And so they plateau. And perhaps that you started to unlock going back to a base phase and you had a huge peak in performance. And I'm willing to wager, I don't know, I don't pretend to know what your training was leading up to this last marathon, but I, I, uh, I'm curious if you would say that you, you kind of did a lot of that phase two training. Uh, yeah, we, uh, probably the 12 weeks was phase two training. I mean, it was relatively yeah. high mileage. It was high mileage phase two training, but, um, what we, we used the, um, the plan in the advanced marathon, uh, third edition. Yes. So yeah. he has, um, like he has a lot of long runs, medium long runs, but very few like easy runs that are labeled like recovery or easy runs, mostly um, all the long runs, medium long runs are at like, um, not quite an easy pace. Like, and it's even described in the book. So it's not like us just deciding to do it that way. It's really like, that's the way it's supposed to be done. So, um, yeah, so the, the plan itself. So the 12 weeks before are probably fall into like, uh, I think just like on the end of any, any training program, we've got things to think about because, you get to judge your training program, I guess, on the results that you get at the end in the, in the re- your target race. Um, and then we've got information that we're gathering, of which now Run Elite is one of the books that we have to add on to our knowledge base. And we've got to feed that in and, and, um, and you know, work out what the next steps are at the end of the day. Um, maybe, I, maybe I should just... Um, cut Liz's free consultancy with Andrew a little bit. <laughs> I love it. I, I like doing this, but whatever you want. <laughs> well, we can come back later if we have time and, and, uh, okay. and, and, and pick it apart some more, uh, try and conclude some things. Um, but let, let me move on to the actual training. I mean, you touched on the sure. actual training. You, you come at it from a slightly different angle and, you know, you have a unique approach to, to, to training. I mean, at the end of the day, it's running and you have to run, but you, you have a different, a different, you come in at a different angle. Um, you know, we, we talk about our lactate uh, threshold runs and how Liz is not good at lactate threshold runs and she doesn't mm-hmm. like them and maybe she needs to focus on that. Or, you know, every week or two weeks, we get a VO2 max run and we're sort of focused on the geeky numbers and terminology. But actually you say, these numbers are not the things that are rate limiting for us. These are not the numbers that are holding us back without going too far into it. I'll just ask you, how come? They're not what limit your performance. I can prove it definitively. In fact, my YouTube video that came out a few days ago is on VO2 max. It's called VO2 max is not what limits your performance. Um, here it is. I'm going to give you the, the, the proof and then a story that backs it up. And the proof is this, when you're in a marathon, you're not, something is getting maxed out. If you ran as hard as you could, 
And you ran with 306, correct? Mm-hmm. I did 307. Okay. So 306, 307, would you say you went about as hard as you could? So you were maxed yes. out. But if we were to measure your VO2 at any at any point, never were you at your VO2 max. You're running in a marathon, you're running at about, depending on your fitness level and the time that you're running, about 85% of your VO2 max. So your VO2 max is not even maxed out. How, how But something is maxed out. How could VO2 max possibly be the thing that limits your performance? I'm not saying that it's not important. I'm saying it's not what limits your performance because it's at 85%. Now, same thing with lactate threshold. Lactate threshold is a bit higher depending on how fast you are. If you're really fast, you might be running at like 97, I mean, in a marathon, 95% lactate threshold, but let's say 90 to 95% lactate threshold. But once again, it's not 100%, but something's 100%. It's not what limits your performance. You can conversely go to a, a shorter distance, say a 5K. And a 5K, uh, for an elite runner, well, no, let's not say an elite runner. Let's say a, a one mile, okay? Because a, a one mile, most people are racing under 12 minutes, all right? Um, in a one mile, you're at maybe 115 or 120% of your VO2 max. Therefore, VO2 max also isn't what's limiting your performance because you can shoot right on by 100%. Something else limits you, but it wasn't the VO2 max. You were able to max that out and then some and go anaerobic after that. So VO2 max and lactate threshold aren't what limit your performance. Here's the story that goes along with that is, and this story is in the book as well. Uh, we all remember Lance Armstrong. Do you remember the story in the book? So Lance Armstrong, fantastic. Now, whatever we think about his ethics with EPO, with uh, doping mm-hmm. and things like that, let's put that on the side for a second because um, that's all uncovered and everybody at that level in the top, whatever, 30, we're all doing that. Ethical or not, I mean, I don't think it's ethical, but Lance Armstrong was still on his bike six hours a day, busting his butt, training really hard. And you can't just do blood doping and become a Tour de France winner. He also trained very hard, very hard. And he had a very high VO2 max and a very high lactate threshold. Now he retired from cycling and he ran the New York City Marathon. Yep. Yeah, I remember article. I remember when, I remember when the that. article came out for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you like me to tell that? Yes, yes. Go, go okay. ahead, because maybe the listeners didn't uh, see that article or don't know about okay. that. Yeah. So his uh, his VO2 max was like 85 or 86 MLKG minute. is like really good, okay? And his lactate threshold, very high. And they compared him with Paul Tergat. At the time, Paul Tergat was the world record holder in the marathon. Now, Lance Armstrong had a higher lactate threshold and he had an equivalent VO2 max to the world record holder. So if VO2 max and lactate threshold are what determine our performance, Lance Armstrong is as good or better than the world record holder. He should be able to run the world record. And even if we say that he couldn't do that, he'd certainly be close. Maybe instead of a 205, maybe a 210 or two, even a 220, even a 230, mm-hmm. even a 240, for goodness sake. But he ran a 258. Not a bad time, but for one of the greatest endurance athletes who's ever lived, a god-awful time. But so VO2 max and lactate threshold are not what contributed. What is it? What do you think? I believe that there are two things far more important well, there's, I know, there's really th- there's we, we know what it is because we've because we've read the book. But um, okay. if you were Jack Daniels, you would say, "Okay, you got two of my three things." So my third thing yes. is uh, running efficiency, or, or uh, yes, yeah, I know how so to. That would actually run. that's perfect. So within there's uh, if we think of this as a pyramid, on the top, I'll just give it to you here. More the, the ultimate limiter of performance is mindset. Second underneath that is that running is a muscular event. It's the, it's the integrity of the muscles, but then we have our metabolic systems. So that's where we're talking right here. VO2 max, lactate threshold, metabolic systems. Within that, 
Yes, it would be VO2 max, lactate threshold, and running the economy. And um, have you ever had Jack Daniels on your podcast? Uh, no, but we covered his book. And what we did was we sent him a whole bunch of questions and he sent us the answers. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of Jack Daniels. What a smart guy. I learned a lot from him. I corresponded with him when I was back in college. I uh, looked up to the guy a lot. Smart man. Um, but even Jack Daniels says, if you look at, if, if you ever get his DVD on, I forget what it's called. He's got a DVD. Um, he even says, yes, VO2 max, lactate threshold, running economy. Those are the three components, the inputs. And he says the product of those are what create performance, but not in equivalent proportions. And VO2 max and lactate threshold are actually very small inputs compared with running economy, which is this giant input. So running economy is most important, but the problem is running economy encompasses so many things. It's your gross movement. It's the cellular mm -hmm. metabolism. It's the location and size of the mitochondria. It's the amount of brown adipose tissue. It's the elastic recoil of the Golgi tendons in the muscles. It's, it's a million different things. So even though it's really important, it's so many things that it's almost how do we even quantify running economy? You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I agree that Jack, if Jack Daniels were here, he'd probably say, "Well, like, that's two of the three. But I believe that he would. I know he would also say because I've heard him say it that running economy matters matters more than the other two. And I would agree. So your your and your conclusion is that you know running is basically a muscular event. The proof's in the pudding with with that Lance Armstrong story. He had the aerobic engine. He had the metabolic enzymes. He had the strong heart and lungs, but his muscles were not conditioned for running. They were conditioned for biking. So he was not a fantastic runner. We can take it to the extreme and take like a really good tennis player, Serena Williams, and put her in a marathon. Probably not that great of a marathon, even though a great athlete, because mm -hmm. she's not specifically trained for the marathon. And we can take it even within running, take Usain Bolt and put him in a marathon. And you two are probably going to beat him. I'm probably going to beat him yes. in a marathon. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. The guy will just like smile at us and charm us all the way to do this. But, um, you know, because he's specifically trained for that one implement and nobody's better in the world than him at that. Mm -hmm. But the marathon's a different story. So, so yeah, it is, it is the economy of motion. It's, it is, when I say it's a muscular event, it is how your muscles perform for the specific demand of the race. And if you want to run a three hour marathon, that's a 652 mile. And so your muscles better be able to fire at 652 pace in whatever, for some people running a 652 mile might be recruiting all their fast twitch fibers and it's a full sprint. If they're old and 400 pounds and have never run a day, running 652 pace for 30 seconds might be a sprint. And for them, it's all out fast twitch muscle fibers. For Kipchoge, it's slow twitch muscle fibers all the way, baby. And so... To, but to run a three-hour marathon, I don't care if it's fast twitch or slow twitch, you have to maintain 652 pace. And that is a muscular event. And then what supports those muscles are the metabolic system. So then we have a conversation about that. But for sure, it is a muscular event. We're, we're not, there's a quote, we are not, um, runners are not lungs with legs. I really like that. Or more than that. It's more than just lungs with legs. Okay, so now I guess we're going to move on. I'll give you the question, Liz, but we're going to move on to how do you get your muscular event to be the best muscular event mm -hmm. you can get? So take it away, yeah. Liz. And and yeah, and this is this is probably like where the um, triphasic model comes in. Um, and the triphasic model, so like there are three steps. There's base training, support training, specific training. Uh, but you also have a fourth step, which is conditioning, which would actually come 
first before you start the triphasic model. And um, I guess, I guess in order to get all our muscular events lined up, um, like how, how long in each phase should we be? And let's say, um, I don't know if you want to talk about conditioning. Conditioning is just like if you're coming back from injury or if you haven't run for a long time. So I think like it's almost like a bonus step. Um, normally I'm guessing if you're healthy, most of the year, you're just going to cycle through the three, the three, um, base training, support training and specific training. So, um, maybe, I don't know if you want to just for our listeners, explain the differences, uh, for each of these. And then also how long do we need to do each one in order to, um, benefit? Okay. You're going to love the answer to this question. Let me give you the simple answer. And we got to expand on one of these phases. Um, okay. We don't, we don't need to talk about conditioning much because I call conditioning just running, getting yourself used to the habit of running. And the outcome that you want from conditioning is getting yourself to the the a high percentage of the frequency that you want to be running. So if you want to run 10 times a week, get yourself to 10 short, easy runs a week. And now you can start base training. Get yourself used to that. Once you've done that, we've got base support specific. They go in that order. And let's work backwards from race day. So from the race, we have specific training leading into it. We want that phase to be ideally six weeks. And the reason is because it takes six weeks to gain a neuromuscular adaptation. Uh, it takes six weeks to build a new soft tissue. You ever break your arm or your leg or have a cast? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Are you in anybody? Yeah. Okay. And you're in, you're, in, you're in plaster for six weeks. Um, six weeks. Why six weeks? That's how long it takes to remodel the tissue. So we want the specific phase of training to be six weeks, and it's highly specific for the race that you're doing. In your case, it would be the marathon, but you would be doing things that are close to marathon pace in relatively high volume. And this can be at marathon pace or slightly faster than or slightly slower than, broken up into intervals, whatever. And you do big runs like this. The biggest runs of your entire training block, maybe doubles in some weeks. I call that special blocks or double blocks. I stole that term from Renato Pinova. Um, you do these big runs, you do it for six weeks. Why? Because if you were to do it for less than six weeks, you don't reap the full benefits of that new stimulus. If you do it for more than six weeks, you start to plateau and you don't get any better and you risk just having to train harder and you risk injury or burnout. So six weeks. When we go back to before that, we have six weeks of support training for the same reason. If you stay in support training for longer, for the same reasons, you'll either plateau or you're not making the most of the new stimulus. Support training is a little bit different. I'm not going to, you didn't ask here, so I'm not going to go into what support training exactly looks like. But in short, your speed workout is a little bit faster than in specific training, but maybe longer, um, or sorry, maybe shorter. And your endurance workouts may be longer, but slower. So it's less specific to the demands of the race. But then we get to base training, which is really important. Base training is at least six weeks. Okay. And it can be up to however long you want. It could be multiple years. I suggest for a lot of runners that if they have more than nine months between peak races, that they actually do two cycles of training and go through all three phases two times. You don't have to. Personally, I like to train for nine to 12 months for a single race and do a big basic phase. I just like it. Um, and the reason we can go, we don't want to go shorter we, I think we should maybe spend some time and dive into base training. It's very important here, but we don't want to go shorter because you're really missing the boat. If you do, you're starting to peak yourself before you have the foundation to stack on big workouts. We don't want to do that, but okay. you do, you can go longer without risk of burnout 
Because the key to base training is that it's all easy. And we often confuse easy with slow. Because if you run faster, it's got to be harder, right? No, no, no. If you run really fast, but for just really short, it's easy. You're not even out of breath. And so in base training, we incorporate lots of volume, but it's very easy. This has the benefit of improving your aerobic engine, your soft tissue integrity, your muscular integrity, your neuromuscular efficiency. It's also low injury risk. But then we also do raw speed development, which is strides and hill sprints and certain kinds of strength training, things to recruit those fast twitch fibers. But when you do those in short bouts, they're easy. If you do the hill sprints uphill, you have less impact, there's less injury risk, you don't burn out, and you can actually accumulate a lot of volume of speed within a week without ever going to the max, without ever huffing and puffing. And so therefore it's sustainable and you can do it for a very long time without burning out. But it's far superior to just running easy, like old Lydiard style training. Mm -hmm. So if I remember rightly from the book, you actually talk in base training about hill sprints for eight seconds yes. with like a full recovery, like maybe five like minutes or yeah. even longer. So I got that idea from um, Brad Hudson. Have you read his book, Run Faster from the 5K to the Marathon? Not Fantastic yet. book. Highly okay. recommend. You might get this one. Brad Hudson. Brad okay. Hudson was coach to, I was a fan of his because he coached Dathan Ritzenhain, who's, who's one of my favorite American runners. Um, he coached Jorge Torres, Alan Culpepper, um, Shane Culpepper, on and on and on. Um, this guy's a very successful coach. He, I believe he coached it. He might've coached at University of Colorado, but then he was a private coach after that. Very successful coach. And he had his runners doing hill sprints all out for eight seconds. Now, why eight seconds? Because we have three metabolic systems. We have the aerobic system that we're all maybe familiar with. And mm -hmm. that goes on and on and on. We have the um, anaerobic system, which kind of maxes out around 90 seconds. So 400 meter, maybe up to the 800 meter, largely anaerobic. But then we have the immediate energy system, which is the ATP phosphocreatine system. And that fires for eight seconds. You have free ATP, which is just energy. ATP is just a... It's what creates movement, any movement in our body, cellular movement. So you have ATP just available in your blood at all times. And you can use it up, most of it, in about eight seconds before you have to rapidly start making more with anaerobic metabolism. So for eight seconds, you can do anything. You can lift the heaviest thing. You can run away from the lion. You can climb the tree. You can sprint as hard as you can, like, you know, Godzilla's chasing you, and you won't even be out of breath. You won't be tired whatsoever. You can go all out. But if you go beyond that, by definition, you have to start slowing down. So even in the Olympic 100 meters, Usain Bolt, he's slowing down in the last 20 meters. It looks like he's speeding up because everybody, everybody's slowing down. He slows down less. Mm. Looks, It's an illusion. Everybody's slowing down. So in base training, when we max it at eight seconds, what we're doing there is we're maxing out our time exposure to fast twitch development. And if you were to go longer than eight seconds, we're really doing an anaerobic interval. Okay. And if you're going to do an interval... You might as well just do strides or do an interval for goodness sake. But if you're going to get the fast twitch muscle development, keep it short. And the reason you need a full recovery is because that's how long it takes for you to be able to go 100% speed again. And there's a difference between 100% effort. At the end of your marathon, you can go 100% effort in that last 100 meters. But is it 100% speed of what you're capable of if you're fully rested? Probably not. No. And by by fully rested, like you're not talking about like standing around like the sprinters do for 10 minutes. I mean, because in your book, I think you gave the example where um, like you can do a hill sprint every mile. So you can oh, yeah. jog for your recovery, right? Absolutely. You can jog. 
you can go lift weights, you can take a break, you can do whatever you want. The only requirement is that you're, if you really want to make the most of this, you wait 10 minutes between repeating it again. Okay. I realize we live in the real world where we may not have that time. So at least five minutes. Um, this is a principle in strength training. Um, you ever listen to Pavel Satsulin? You know who he is? No. We, we don't need to go there. Um, you can do whatever it is that you want. And I, I suggest keep on jogging and just get your miles in because who wants to stand around for 80 minutes, you know? Perfect. So you can, you can get your, that's how you can get your base training done because your, your mileage will accumulate in between your hill sprints. Um, and then, and then, so, um, maybe do you want to describe also strides and why they're beneficial? And, uh, in the book, you mentioned that you can do them either on the same days as your hill sprints or on alternate days from your hill sprints. You can do them at any time, provided that you're not overly fatigued. So I wouldn't do strides uh, after a double block workout, for example, but those are few and far between what you want to do with. So let me illustrate this with a, a story. Cause I think we resonate with stories. People like to learn from a story. Um, Ken and mm-hmm. Yusuf you you know who he is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great runner. Maybe one of the greatest runners of all time. I mean, definitely one of maybe the greatest runner of all time. Now leading up to the last Olympics, he was training for the marathon crazy story. His country didn't let him into the Olympics, different story there, but he's training for the marathon. And what he's doing three months out from the Olympics is he's running about, I believe it was like 140 miles per week, much of it, very easy. He'd actually run with the women's team. Um, and he's, there's footage of him running at 10 minute pace as part of his warm up. Now a guy who can run four 40 something for a marathon running 10 minute miles, yikes, very easy. But then every other day, Three months before the Olympics, every other day he's running 30. He runs easy. Then he runs 30, 100 meter strides. And they're done at on 15 seconds, which is a four minute mile, which sounds fast. But for a guy who can run a 345 mile, it's not that fast. It's just pretty fast. And he does 30 of them every other day. And that's about two miles worth every other day. So maybe six to eight, about seven miles worth per week, seven miles worth of 2000 meter race pace running every week. And he's a 201 marathoner, world, former world record holder in the 5K and the 10K. Clearly it's working for him. That's the power of a stride is because the, what we're doing with a stride, now let's go back to base training here. Base training, there's two components of it. There's of course the easy running, which we all get. And we're building our aerobic engine and we're building our muscular integrity. But the speed, what we're doing is we're building, ner- this is Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels has us do repetition training, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Repeti- what is repetition training? We're running pretty dang fast, but not all out in order to maximize our, in order, he would say we do repetition training to improve our running economy. That's exactly what we're doing. What is running economy? It's how efficiently you, your neuromuscular system fires largely. So when we do strides, we're racking up a lot of conditioning for making the neuromuscular system very efficient, very efficient, very efficient, while also working on the aerobic engine and the muscular integrity. You put those two together, and I'm telling you that just off of base training, and I'm I'm tempted here, maybe I will. I'll stop in a second here, only if you want this. I can give you unlimited stories on runners who I'm working with right now who PR in the marathon, the 5K, the half marathon, the 10K, off of the tail end of the base training before they even get into sport training. And that's really the key to this whole thing, okay, is that... Base training is so important. It's sustainable. You won't get injured. You can do it forever. You won't burn out. You can run PRs off of it. It maximizes the your neuromuscular efficiency, your raw speed and power, and your aerobic engine. Maximizes all that. And you can run a PR in any distance off of it. But 
when you do that, if you were to do that, if you run a PR off of just base training, what does it say? What does it signal to yourself? It's like, oh my God, I just ran my fastest time ever. And I haven't even done the real training yet. What mm -hmm. am I really capable of? And that unlocks a belief that holy can, what can I do? And we set the goal a lot, a lot further. So it's the first key. Like you said, Liz, you said you want proof in the training, right? So when you do effective base training, you can get that proof in the training that shows you that maybe you want to take that goal and set it even further. And you actually believe you can. The only reason you push that goal even faster is because you believe it's too easy now because you believe that it's a lock-in. And when you believe that, now you have the mindset as well. And so the training feeds the mindset and the mindset feeds the training. And they're not, we don't want to do one. We don't want to just sit in a cave and meditate and be like, oh, I will run fast. Um, mm -hmm. How about we do that? But we also train. And when you put those two together and they feed each other, that's really what I, I think you just is. sold base training to everybody that's going to listen to this episode. Um, <laughs> so that's great. I actually just have like a, a side question that I don't remember really reading about in the book, but I know like it's a common practice because we used to do this when I was running uh, with a university team. We would take like yearly time off running. Like it, it was mm -hmm. sort of like forced time off running and it was always like at the end of a season. Um, uh, it was usually for us at the end of cross country season, we would have two weeks. And the first week you were absolutely forbidden to run. And the second week you could run if you wanted to, but no workouts. Um, so what, what do you think about, uh, like time off running and like, how often do you prescribe it and for how long? Yeah. What a good question. Something really interesting about this that I think, um, your listeners and my listeners will should hear is that elite runners take more time off than non-elite runners. And they do it because they plan it. A lot of runners, they take time off because they need to, because they wait till they get injured and then they take time off, mm -hmm. but they don't plan it and they don't proactively take it off. Elite runners don't do that. They take more time off. I remember one of my favorite runners, uh, Tim Bro, back in the early 2000s. Um, well, he did have an injury, but I remember him saying, I didn't take a step from whatever it was, like September through after New Year. But he's an Olympic runner and he ran the Athens 5000. That's like, he didn't run for three months. How did he do that? Well, um, it's okay to take some time off. And I think most runners should. I don't think it's necessary. But I do think it's necessary based off the way that most people train. And I really do believe that most runners are running too hard most of the time. And if that's the case, you should take some time off. And you also should taper. Maybe we'll come to that later in this talk. But if you're not overtraining, not only do you not to need to ever take time off if you don't want to, you also don't need to taper. You can just keep on running and cycle through phases. But for most people, taking time off is a very good idea because it protects you from a number of things. And I'll tell you, musculoskeletal injury is the is the least of the of the worries. It will help you, and it will help you um, just like get out of overtraining. But if you fail to take time off and you're training too hard most of the time, you risk other kinds of burnout, like endocrine system burnout, or just mental and emotional fatigue, metabolic fatigue. Mm -hmm. And when those things hit, you're out. If you get an endocrine burnout, I mean, you really got to take some time off and let yourself recover. And we're talking maybe months, and you lose motivation, and it's really downward. So. You were taking two weeks off. Is that a year or after every season? Uh, it was not after every season. I think it was twice a year usually. So it wasn't after every Sounds season. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, think, uh... I think for a lot of runners, that's very appropriate. Yes. Okay, great. But you planned uh, it. And you, and you feel yeah, in control. Yeah, I was planned. Planning, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was planned. Yeah. It was always like 
after our last cross country race. And then the other one was like sort of at the opposite end of the year, but sort of depended. Uh, some people did some indoor season. So sometimes it would be after indoor or if you were doing yeah. a marathon in the spring, it would be like after the marathon that you did in the spring or whatever. Um, so yeah, that, that varied a little bit, but I, it was always like kind of like mandatory uh, two weeks off <laughs> every, every like half a year, let's say. So um I'd like to add something to this before okay. we move on from that. That is, um, we've all heard consistency is key. You know, Frank mm-hmm. Shorter is, is famous for saying this, um, a lot of runners, right? And I would urge people to look at consistency over a longer period of time than they might be used to. Not over, not week to week or day to day or even month to month, but like quarter over quarter or half a year or year over year consistency. And when you look at it that way, taking two weeks off is nothing because it improves your ability to be consistent year over year. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's going to drive the performance. So in the book, I break down a couple of elite trainings, Moses Mosop, Abel Karui. Abel Karui got, before setting up, before winning a world championship in the marathon, he got sick and he was traveling and he, I think he had a funeral to go to as well. And he lost a lot of training right leading up to the world championships. And you look at his training calendar and he ran like three days in a week for like a couple of weeks. His frequency went way down. He's taking time off right before world championship and he still won because his consistency over the year was spot on. And then you have the mm-hmm. ability to take this time off and it really does pro really does improve your performance in the long term to just take it. It's a, that's okay. to some extent, that's why uh, training logs are useful, not so much to have loads and loads of data, but be able to look back when you've got, you know, one week that you're off, look back on your, your body of work and go, look, one week's no big deal here. We've done 20 previous mm-hmm. weeks of, of good solid work. It kind of proves it to you. Uh, before we get too far away from base training, I just want to come back to the slow piece of base training. Um, how slow and how far? I get this question a lot. Um, in terms of how slow, I'm not going to give you inside of the book. There is a access to a pace calculator mm-hmm. and that pace calculator will tell you what pace is to run for every kind of run, except the one that I don't want you to pay attention to is, is in base training really because base training is subjective. If you're running it, one of the goals of one of the outcomes that you might want to hit in base training is to increase your mileage in, in specific training. We don't want to increase mileage. We may decrease it in base training. We do want to increase it. How do you increase your mileage without burning out or getting hurt? You run it slow. So run it however slow you need in order to hit whatever mileage goal you've set for yourself. And I can't give you a pace because if you were to run 30 miles a week, you might be able to run it easy. So for you guys, if you ran 8.30 pace for 30 miles a week, it's probably pretty easy. But if you ran 8.30 mile pace for 120 miles per week, eh, you know the second half of that week is starting to get pretty difficult, even though it's the same pace. Mm-hmm. So it is a perceived exertion okay. in base training. For workouts, it is absolutely the pace. But for base training, it's um, perceived exertion. What was the second part of that? Um, this distance. How- if, oh, yeah. if we're if we're training for marathons, would we ever do runs that are longer than marathons? Oh my goodness, absolutely! This there's a, such a cool story there. Um, so let me finish with that. But how long? Um, the longer, essentially, to a degree, the longer the better. To a degree, and the way that you'll know how long to run is like: should you run longer than a marathon? Yes, because you should be capable of running longer than a marathon without much of a big big deal, whether you do it or not, how often you do it, I guess that's up to you, but you should be capable of it. If you want to truly unlock peak marathon performance, because it's called the double step up. If on race day, you're running longer than you ever have and faster at that pace than you ever have, 
good luck. But if you're comfortable with the distance and it's just a question of speed, it's one less variable to worry about. So you do want to get your mileage as, as high as you can without it having an adverse effect, either injury or robbing you from things in your life that you want. And the way that I coach runners on how to do that is assuming that they're at the beginning of a phase of training. If they're training hard and their race is coming up, don't do this. But if you've finished a race and you're building towards the next one, what I want runners to do is look at their data from the last year or so. And I want you to pick basically a month in the last year. What, what is your highest mileage in a month, not in a week? I don't care about the week. What did you sustain for a month period? And take that highest amount and use that as move pretty quickly move into that as the floor of your base training. Now you may take a few weeks or even a month or two to get there, but quickly move into that as the floor. And the reason is because number one, we know that you can do it without dying because you didn't. Mm -hmm. Right. And what we also know that you only did it for one month. So if you get back there, but you do it for six months, your injury risk is extremely low because like we said, you've already done it and not blown up. But since you've only ever done it for one month, if you did it for six, you're going to get, you're going to have the best six month training block in terms of mileage that you've ever had, at least in years recent, in years mm -hmm. past. Um, and so that's a really great starting point. And then from there, how high do you go? You don't even need to increase it. If you just did that, you're going to have the best training endurance training block of the last year by definition. But mm -hmm. if you want to up it from there, um, the sky's the limit as long as you're willing to pay the price. And that price is run slow. If you do it too fast, you probably get hurt. And recovery is of key importance. I'm personally, I'm running twice a day, every single day right now. Today's day 71. I'm running high mileage training for a hundred miler uh, in three weeks and everything's fine because I'm sleeping nine hours per day, every single day. And my diet is impeccable. If you have a really great diet and you sleep well, you can run a lot, a whole lot. I mean, 50 miles a day or more. Yes, I can name many runners who run that much or more, but they're all sleeping quite a bit and eating impeccably well. Mm -hmm. Start. I give you a starting point for how to know where you can start base training and then how high you go is up to you. As long as you're willing to go easy, sleep and eat well, there's no limit. And to the degree to which you're not going to do those things, well, we reel it in and maybe you just do a conservative bump up. And so during this base training phase, um, can you like attempt maybe a couple of these over distance marathon long runs? Like, you know, because you talk about, you talk about doing two in your book and um, I, it, it, I think you talked about it in terms of like in the specific training phase to do them. Uh, but can you maybe like attempt them in the base training so that they're no longer new or then is that like just too much, too much? Not training? at all. Um, I've got a runner right now. <laughs> Uh, his name is Kyle. Who's do, he just did a 27-mile training run and then a 50K training run, and he's in his base phase. Okay. But he's not a stranger to these distances, so it's not that big of a deal. For myself as well, same thing. I'm an ultra runner on the trails, so I'm doing – last weekend I did 27 miles with a bunch of vertical gain on a single track trail. No big deal. I ran again that evening when my friend came over. Um, I did it nice and slow. But the point is it's more than a marathon, and I'm like – I'm, I'm maybe going to run the London marathon in April. I'm not sure yet. Um, but that's like what, seven months away. So I'm in like base training for that, maybe, you know, and still doing over distance just because it fits my training. Now, if you've, if you've never, if you're a first time marathoner and you've never run more than 20 miles, do not do an over distance training run. Mm -hmm. It would be better to, to get up to 18 or 20 and just consistently do that every week as opposed to 30 and then no long run again for four weeks because you're burnt out. 
So it really does come down to your history of training. Okay. We've got a lot of food for thought here. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, moving, moving on a little bit into um, uh, support training. It seemed to me when I was reading the book that support training is kind of bringing the ends of the base training inwards towards your, towards your race, sort of taking the slow, long component and making it maybe not as long and maybe not as slow. And then the fast component and maybe not as short, but maybe not as quick. So it's, it's sort of slowing down, but getting longer. It's coming to both ends are sort of coming in towards the middle. Is that, is that fair? Smiling. And that's sort of um, collecting in all the muscle fibers. So all the twist, fast twitches from one end and all the slow twitches from the other end and sort of working them from the outside inwards towards your race, your race fibers or whatever they they are. Yeah. I'm really uh, happy to hear you explain it like that. You said it exactly correct. But what it tells me okay. is that um, I have a video trainings where I animate this. And what I tried to do in the book is to use pictures to animate with still shots, exactly what you said. And you downloaded that perfectly. So um, okay, cool. Well, well said. I don't have much to contribute to that. You said it exactly right. I will say that we move from less specific training to more specific training as you get closer to the race. And so support training is in the middle. We're not doing super slow and we're not doing all out fast. This is the training that a lot of runners are mostly familiar with. So you might do anything from, um, you know, 10 by 400 at 5k pace. Um, you might do eight by one mile at threshold pace. You also might do tempo runs that are like 60 minute tempo run at 10 seconds slower than threshold pace or something like that. These are runs that we're really familiar with and it fits perfectly into this phase. Okay. And would you still do, uh, would you still continue your hill sprints and, uh, strides? Uh, you want to continue strides. Ideally you want to do strides and hill sprints all the way through your specific phase. And then you can do them as your body your body may need some big recovery once you get to big workouts and specific training. So you'll do them, but not at the expense of taking that recovery. So all through base and all through support, we're doing strides and hill sprints the whole time. In an ideal world, some of my runners, I don't have them ever do hill sprints. We just do strides because they might have a history of plantar fasciitis, um, Achilles tendonitis, um, tibialis posterior tendinopathy, whatever. And for those reasons, eh, we'll focus on strides and maybe we'll, maybe we will add in hill sprints in support training because we neglected them deliberately in base training, but it's all mm -hmm. fair game. As far as I'm concerned, through some base and support, we'll just tailor it to you. If you're runners who've got all those tendinopathies, et cetera, they should listen to our podcast on run healthy, um, which tells yeah. them how to deal with all of that. As I'm sure, you know, I um, just listened to that today. What, what, what's, what's, that's great. What strikes me with respect to the support training and the base training is if they're six weeks you've you've been through 12 weeks training at this point you haven't run any race pace is that is that true or am i have i missed something uh it's mostly true but we're not in a perfect vacuum here so okay. the truth is that you want to be hitting every pace through every phase but the vast majority is with we're going to look at workouts here not all you're running um when we get into support training I suggest roughly one endurance workout, one speed workout and a long run per week or per macro cycle, which could be a 10 day cycle or whatever, but let's just say for a week. And so you are going to be running at whatever 
specific paces for that phase in those three runs and everything else is outside of that. Could be easier, easy runs, could be faster strides and hill sprints. And so at every phase of training, we're hitting every phase from hill sprints and strides to maybe some intervals and fartlek to maybe some tune-up races and fun runs to long runs and everywhere in between. But we're really focusing on two areas, <clears throat> excuse me, per uh, phase. Did that answer? You said we're missing <clears throat> race pace training. So what you said, yes, good. I want you to miss race pace training. If you're doing race pace training for a marathon and you're 16 weeks out, stop it. Stop it. Please, please. I'll tell you why. Because there's an opportunity cost here. What does running five miles at marathon pace have to do with running a marathon at marathon pace? They're not metabolically the same. They're not mentally the same. They're not anything the same. You're burning different, you're burning, you know, you're going to tap into fat metabolism once you go longer. When you're doing the five miles, it's just glycogen. What does running five miles or six miles at marathon pace have to do with running a marathon at marathon pace? Not much. So it's not specific for the marathon. We think we're doing something specific, but the only way if we start doing, there's two ways we can do this. In base training, if you're going to run at marathon pace, well, you could either do big workouts at marathon pace, say 18 miles at marathon pace, but chances are in base training, you're not fit enough to even do that yet. If you are, just go run your peak race, man. You know? um, <laughs> so, but if you're not, which you're not, then the alternative is to run less volume because that's all you're capable of and if you do that the only way to get better is to then next week stack on more volume next week stack on more volume next week stack on more volume on and on and on for 10 weeks 12 weeks 18 weeks and that is what we call progressive overload and progressive overload is not the key to, that, that will ruin you because the only way to get better is to stack on more and when we stack on more and more and more whether it be mileage or miles run at race pace or whatever. When you just stack on more, one of three things happens. Eventually, injury, burnout, or plateau. So if you start running at marathon pace, the only strategy is to add more and more and more on again and again and again and hope that you don't get injured, burnt out, or plateau. And of course, you will. If you just keep doing that, you will. So instead, what we want to do, and also remember that you, you get a neuromuscular adaptation maxed out at about six weeks. So when you start doing marathon pace running, I really want you to hit it hard for six weeks and then race, mm -hmm. but, but you can't hit it hard for 18 weeks because you're going to plateau. So instead what we do is let's work backwards. And this, this makes perfect sense. If you want to run at marathon pace for your marathon, it would make sense that if you can get in, okay, let's use the most extreme example here, a double block workout where in the morning you do um, a warm up, and then you do, let's take in a really, truly elite workout here. And this is in the book. Um, 10 K at about marathon pace, five minute break, 10 K at about marathon pace, go home, eat lunch, take a nap, come back in the evening again, 10 K about marathon pace, five minute break, 10 K about marathon pace. We can, we can fine tune that a little, but you get the and point. And what do you mean by, by about a marathon pace? So like, let's say well, our marathon yeah, pace yeah. is, you know, like, yeah. let's see, you said 652 per miles since we're talking in miles. Um, right. so if we run seven minutes per mile for that 10K, like, is that adequate or not quite? Yes. We're sitting, we're double, we're juggling two things right here. So let me try to, um, let me answer oh, okay. that. I want to, it's okay. I just want to try to keep my mind uh, on track here. Um, you can run, I give you a range between like 95 to 100% and 100 to 105% roughly for your specific phase. And that counts as race pace because 
Number one, if you're running a little bit slower than race pace, you can do it at a much higher volume. And this is what we see in the book. Those mm -hmm. 10K, 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 and then 10 by 1K. Um, we see uh, Moses Mosop do that, for example, leading into setting a world record. Um, and he's doing it at just slower than marathon pace. And it's like five seconds per mile slower than marathon pace. Yep. Because he got 24 miles every day in, in one day. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the fatigue starts to build up. And even though he's running ever so slightly slower than marathon pace, those muscle fibers get fatigued and they start to recruit the muscle fibers around them. And they recruit the faster than fibers and the slower than fibers. The faster than fibers get recruited more quickly. That's why you mm -hmm. lose your ability to sprint, right? So they start to recruit those fibers more and more and more. And because he's training such high volume at just slower than marathon pace, it actually is recruiting the fibers exactly at marathon pace once he's accumulated fatigue. But it's also accumulating the um, supporting fibers. But the benefit okay. is that he, he gets to do higher volume of it. Now, there's another workout where I say about because there's a variation of this that you could do that would be the same thing, 10K, 10K, five seconds slower. In the evening, 10K, five seconds slower. Then instead of 10K, 10 by 1,000, five seconds faster. So we're going a little slower, a little slower, a little slower, a little faster. And throughout the entire day, we've basically averaged marathon pace, but it's all been a lot of volume, slightly slower. And then we hammer on the slightly faster at the end. And it really taxes our glycogen, our glycogen storage and et cetera. So you really do get a specific, you don't have to run exactly marathon pace to get okay. this, the benefits of uh, specific pacing. Yeah. That sounds like a scary training program. Um, and yeah. now you've yeah. put it into Liz's head. This is going to be a problem <laughs> for us. it out for 5Ks. Do 5K, five, so, do 5K doubles in morning and evening. That's appropriate. I, I've done track. I've done a workout that's similar to that. And maybe my coach at the time got it from the similar place you got it from. I have no idea. But um, we, we used to do once during the marathon training cycle, we would go out morning and evening. So 20K in the morning, 20K in the evening, 10K easy, and then 10K at marathon pace in the morning. And Love then it. 10K easy, 10K marathon pace again in the evening. And uh, yes, I actually great. like when I finished that workout, I felt like a superhero. <laughs> As you should. What a workout. Great workout. Yeah. So it was a, yeah, there was just, it was just that it wasn't all marathon pace. There was like half of it was easy for us, but uh, I guess it was kind of similar. It is a marathon pace workout because I really love it because what you did was you were able, it actually is maybe more specific because so in that morning you're getting 20 K and 10 of it was run at marathon pace, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe if you tried to run 20 K marathon pace, you might not have been able to twice in a day. Let's say that you would have only been able to get in 16 K if you just went straight marathon pace. So mm -hmm. by doing it the way that you did, it's really smart because you get to get, yeah, there's a little bit less marathon pace running, but there's more volume. And the volume in itself is specific to the marathon. Okay. Okay. So it works. It works. You see how it's like super flexible. You just have to know what the outcome is. Yeah. Super flexible. And then see, so we're talking about these over distance runs. And I guess this is kind of an over distance run as well. Cause in the same day you're running like 40 K well, no, it's not over distance, but it's at distance. It's the right distance. Anyway, um, yeah. either way, yeah. uh, the question is like, how close to the marathon can you do these? The answer does vary. The The simple answer is um, don't do them within three weeks of the marathon is the most simple okay. answer. Okay. Okay. There's a little bit more of a complex answer. Um, uh, there's, uh, let me go three levels deep here. That's the most, just take that and run with it. But three to five weeks out from the marathon is an even better answer because it takes about a month to absorb an aerobic 
stimulus, you're still building up mitochondria and migrating them to the periphery of the cell four weeks after you do these big runs. So three to five weeks out is a really great window to be doing your biggest runs because you have time to absorb it and you have time. um, And they're not so close to your run that you're still going to be fatigued from them. And then the third level deep here is I talk about a a man named Michael Arnstein in the book as well. Uh, Michael Arnstein is a marathoner and ultra marathoner. He's very good at both. And um, I mean, he's a 225 marathoner, hardly without without even trying, really. He's really a 100-mile, 50-mile runner. And this guy will run big volume leading right up to his biggest race. And in fact, he won the Vermont 100-mile race. The day before, he only ran 15 miles. The day before, he only ran 30 miles. The day before that, three days out, he, he ran 50 miles, 50, 30, 15 one hundred mile race. Why? Because he's used to running 250 miles a week. Okay. So that's an extreme example, but we can see that with, with guys like Bill Rogers. Bill Rogers is um, one of the endorsers of the book as well. And by the way, the, the copy that you guys have, um, Jerry Lindgren is an endorser of the book as well now, but his name was put on the book, I think, after you got it. Um, Bill Rogers, nope. leading into his... On here. So, do you have Jerry Lindgren on the back of yours there? Yeah. Run a lead. You do, okay. book is a guidebook to great running and racing, says Jerry okay. Lindgren. There's actually a third endorsement that's coming out um, this coming week. But from Liz, fantastic. from Liz, probably. From yeah. you guys, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, I just want to say this. with You're saying how close to the race can you do that? I th- maybe I've answered it enough. I'm tempted to talk to get into Bill Rogers right here, but really what that would be is talking about tapering. And Bill Rogers wouldn't do over-distance running three days out from the race, but he would keep his volume very high, full height up until three days before the race. So I won't go there because that's not what you asked, but the short mm-hmm. answer is, uh, is three weeks. So, I mean, maybe we can just go right into tapering because we've talked uh, talked about, you know, the middle phase and now the specific phase. Mm-hmm. And so like, then the next step is tapering. So um, you actually say that tapering as we know it um, is not maybe so necessary. Yes. Controversial statement. Adamant about this. It's not controversial. It's it's not because it's elites don't taper. And why do we think we need to taper? Because non-elites taper and we and non-elites get a performance benefit from tapering. Mm-hmm. But the reason is because they're overtrained, because we run too hard and we run zone two all the time and our easy runs are never truly easy. So we're in the yellow zone most of the time. We're pushing too hard most of the time. And so we're overtrained. So we if you're overtrained, you better taper. Mm-hmm. And most people are overtrained. And most people are really, not all runners, but really a lot of runners, a lot, a lot of runners are not training for like high consistency for year after year after year. It's like they kind of run, but then when the race comes up, they really try to train as as best they can for like the 10 to 16 weeks before the marathon. And I would consider that really cramming. 16 weeks is not enough to really make the best you can do in your life. Um, So if we're going to sort of cram like that, we're going to tend to overtrain it. And then if you taper, you're going to get that performance boost. But the there's two really good arguments against this. First one is principle of specificity. As you get closer to your marathon, you want to be running high volume because the marathon is a long race. And we want to be running marathon pace, not for one or two miles, but relatively high volume because that's what's specific to the race. So mm-hmm. why in the heck 
why in the heck would we train more and more and more and more specific to the race? And then as soon as the race is coming up, go less and less and less and less and less specific and then expect that that's going to improve our performance. It doesn't make any sense. It violates the law of specificity. It works because we're overtrained. So a better approach might be to not overtrain. And there's only two ways to do that. And this is a tough pill to swallow because if you don't overtrain, it means stop running so dang hard and run a little bit less miles than you are. But we don't want to do that. But what it really means, and this is where mindset comes in, because what it really means, it doesn't mean that. It just means be more long-term oriented. And if you are, you can adapt yourself. You can get to the mileage you want, but you adapt to it mm -hmm. so that you're not fatigued. You're not trying to increase your mileage and your pace-specific run and your whatever strength training. Like Frank Shorter would run 20 miles every single Sunday year-round. Training for the Olympics, off-season, track season, 5K, 10K, it doesn't matter, 20-mile Sunday, 20-mile Sunday, 20-mile Sunday. Years and years and years and years of doing this. So Frank Shorter didn't need to taper because a 20-mile run was not a big deal for him even the week before an Olympic marathon. No taper necessary because he's adapted to it. Why? Because he was super consistent for a very long time. So the answer is, if you're consistent and you allow yourself to adapt to your training as you go, you not only don't need to taper, it would be foolish to taper because you're detraining right before your competition. But you can see how that's a tough pill to swallow because it requires that we take responsibility for, we have to acknowledge that uh, if I don't want to do that because I haven't been consistent in the past, but I have this race coming up and I don't, uh, I'll just do it next time, you know? Okay, fine, but do it next time. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's uh, starting to be more well known that, you know, we don't need, we definitely don't need three weeks of tapering. Cause I think that was like the, the old um, sort of like the, the, the old style of tapering people would take three weeks. And now they're saying that um, that's too much cause you're detraining in three weeks. So uh, you know, you want like 10 days or up to two weeks is, um, sure. is kind of what you see in, in, um, I mean, at least in the Hansen training plan, it's really like your sure. last hard workout is, is 10 days out. 10 days out and yeah. then, uh, you do run every day still, but like your volume ends up decreasing over. Yeah, reduce the volume, but maintain the intensity. I think what is what people sort of. Yeah. So I will say that that works for most people. This is why, um, things like the Hansen's program and like Fitzinger and Brad Hudson and Jeff Galloway and Jack Daniels, these are excellent programs for most people. But I can also tell you that, so in the book here, page 184, I'm looking at um, the counterintuitive approach to tapering that elites really use. And some of these runners are Hansen's runners, like Desiree Linden. She's hand, she yep. is, either is or was uh, she's runner, not. Right? She's not anymore, but she was for like many years, yeah. But let's just take a look. I talk about Desiree Linden, um, Abby Diagostino, Matt Fitzgerald, who's not a runner, but an author, Bill Rogers, Abel Curie, Moses Mosop, Ryan Hall. I talk about all these runners and their approaches to a taper and none of them taper. Desiree Linden didn't taper. Now, when I say they don't taper, what I mean is that they don't do a one or two week or three week taper. It doesn't mean that they train harder. No, no, no. Your hardest training is done three weeks before the race. And instead of tapering, you just ride it out. You don't do any more. You don't do much less. You just kind of chill and maintain. And then when you're about three days out from the race, yeah, we'll dial it back a little bit, a little bit to get that little extra buffer three days out, but training yeah. full mileage until four days out, you're training full mileage. Now, Bill Rogers was training about 128 miles a week leading up to his world record performance at Boston in 1975. And he ran full mileage up till 
up till four days before Boston. He did a little mini taper and he won Boston. But then Boston is on a Monday, Marathon Monday. He then went okay. to Cape Cod and he ran the Falmouth seven miler, which is the most competitive seven mile race in the world, I think. And not only did he win that less than a week later, so Monday to Saturday, not only did he win it, but he set a course record. What happened? Not only did he not taper going into the marathon and won, I think he set a course record too at Boston, but then he didn't taper. He just raced the marathon and five days later, he races again and sets a rec uh, record on this course. What happened? There's no taper going on there. World record, Boston champion. Hmm. And um, uh, Bill Rogers, Desiree Linden, same thing. She cut her mileage from, she cut it by 10%. So there is a little bit of a taper there. It's mm -hmm. 10% and that comes in the last three days. But then let's take a look at Ryan Hall. I'll just read this here for you. Ryan Hall, the holder, uh, US record holder in the half marathon still today. Um, I think in the marathon as well currently. Um, he actually tried a traditional three-week taper leading into the Boston Marathon in 2015, something like that. He tried it. And one week before the race, following a short, easy 30-minute run on interview, he said that it was the first time in the past few weeks that he hadn't felt great. And he went on to run well, but far short of his personal best at the distance. So, you know, there's more examples in there. But when you look at elite runners, they're not tapering. They're, they're just maintaining yeah. the last three weeks with a very short taper. And when they do, there's an example. Now, there may be exceptions to this, right? If they're overtrained, you should taper. But Ryan Hall, even, he did a traditional taper that a lot of people do try, and he fell flat, according to him. Mm -hmm. So no taper, provided that you're recovering along the way. And when you're recovering along the way, you're also not doing that increase for three weeks, step back for a week, increase for three weeks, step back for a week. That's a burnout prevention strategy to going too much in those three weeks. You know that like okay. come back every fourth mm -hmm. week yep. kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Not necessary unless you're going too much in those three weeks. And then necessary, yes. And most people are, so they should follow that. I'd say like 90% of runners really should follow that and really should taper. But you can unlock better performance if you just adapt in the long term. Okay, so then, then like the goal would be to adapt so that then you can just maintain whatever mileage you're doing. Um, just consistently week, week in, week out, like without, without any like cutback weeks. Yes. Ideally. Okay. okay. Ideally. Ideally in your, in your base training, you're increasing that volume in support training, depending on your race distance, you may slightly increase the volume. And then in specific training, we're really keeping volume flat and we're increasing specificity, increase specificity, increase specificity. You might even decrease training volume in exchange for more specificity. But okay. I wouldn't call that a taper. I wouldn't call that a taper. And then no. yes, we could call it a taper, but I would limit it to, like I say, three days. A week, two weeks, three weeks seems overkill to me. It's not what we see in the elite running world, especially in the long distances. Especially. Now, if you're running a 1500 meter or a 5,000, possibly we could have a different conversation there, possibly. But in the long distances, no. Time's moving on a little bit. Now I'd like to get a, in a couple of questions on nutrition, if we could. Um, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> I tell you, this is Andrew's this really is, excited about this. <laughs> this is the most I'm most passionate about this is it, for anything else that I coach with runners on. Okay, well, let me hear you with the with the first the first nutrition question that we we came across was you know, the morning of the the morning rest day morning insulin spiking and how um, how you should maybe. I think you think you mentioned that we shouldn't eat for two hours before race start. 
yeah. we we read this the day before we planned uh, to have <laughs> uh, a gel on the start line of our of our, uh, of, our, of our of our race. So then we're going. Oh, okay. So if we're going to do a warm up, and we did a two k warm up, um, something like that. Um, yeah. Which was only oh, 10 minutes. I was like, get, no, Alan, we shouldn't eat the gel. And he's we're gonna like, we're going to get exercised like, enough to eat, eat the, gel. the gel. And I'm saying, eat the gel, eat the gel. And Liz is saying, no, no, I read Andrew's book. And it says, you got to get an insulin spike and it'll work against you. Don't eat the gel. Don't eat the gel. So <laughs> we were on race day. We were kind of caught. So yeah, we compromised. Um, we we ate half a gel, gel each. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. So you did the right thing. Okay. We can talk about this, the science of the nutrition here. Um, so the fact that you asked me about this, this will apply to everybody. If we talk about holistic, like nutrition in your training, mm -hmm. oh boy, watch out. Um, okay. But for this, this we, is, this you is can a more simple answer. Yeah, it, we let's can start there, with this one. Let's we'll start with this one. one. Okay, because this uh, is simple. Okay. Okay. Um, you did the right thing because you wanted to, and you should not do something that you don't want to do because it'll take away from your confidence. So you should have had that gel. Nice. Uh, I, this was first introduced to me by Nate Jenkins, who was a, a great runner, one of America's top marathoners a, a while ago. He had a back injury that was ended his career. I heard him talk about this and it just made a lot of sense and I dove deeper into it. But essentially, in a marathon, you are likely to hit the wall. And hitting the wall means that you shift from glycogen metabolism predominantly to fat metabolism because you're running low on glycogen. And we hit the wall because it takes four times the amount of oxygen to metabolize fat than it does glycogen. So you can't breathe four times as much. Mm -hmm. So we have to slow down. Okay. So what we're wanting to do is take how quickly we burn through that glycogen and either uh, delay it by mixing in a little bit higher ratio of fat earlier on, store more glycogen or take in some glucose. Okay. These are the strategies. Really what we're trying to do in a marathon is make sure we don't hit the wall because that will end your PR, right? Hmm. So when you're burning a high amount of, of glycogen, the glycogen is, is stored complex. It's, it's glucose that's bound together, okay? So you mobilize that glycogen, turn it in, basically turn it into glucose, goes through your blood, and you're going to turn this glucose into energy in the mitochondria. But in order to get the glucose from the blood into the cells where the mitochondria is, you have to secrete insulin. Insulin will grab that glucose, pull it in. So the presence of insulin means that any glucose that enters the blood is going to be pulled out. No insulin, no glucose pulled out. That's what a type one diabetic is, right? So mm -hmm. if you were to eat some sugar, goes into your intestine, into your blood, and there's that glucose. And so we secrete insulin to pull it out until everything comes to a nice baseline. Glucose goes down, insulin goes down, nice baseline. That's really where we want to start the race. Because if you start the race with high, with, with glucose recently being in your blood at a higher level, guess what? Insulin is at a higher level too. And so we're going to, that presence of insulin will burn up your glycogen faster and you'll hit the wall faster. And so what we want to do is you want, you can fuel up the morning of a race, but you want to give your time for that glucose to empty out of your stomach, move into the small intestine, get in your blood, and then be taken out of the blood and stored or used. And depending on what you ate, 
that'll take anywhere from an hour to three hours. If you eat fruit, it's very quick, closer to half an hour or an hour. If you ate a bagel with peanut butter, don't do that. But if you ate like a complex, like a oatmeal or a bagel or a toast or some complex carbohydrate, you're looking at two to three hours. So for that reason, I say stop eating at least two hours before the gun goes off. It's more like three. Okay. Yeah, stop. And now we understand that it's because it allows your insulin to come back to baseline. Okay. And then when you start running, when should you start taking in gels or any kind of calories? You want to wait until you're going to start mobilizing more glucose and mobilizing more insulin. They're going to, they're going to slowly go up and they're going to plateau. Assuming you're running at a steady pace, they'll plateau at around 20 minutes. So at that, when it hits a plateau, now start taking gels as much as you like at whatever interval you like. But there's a window from two hours before the gun goes off till 20 minutes after the gun goes off where not one calorie shall pass your lips. Okay. But don't we see elite runners standing on the starting line, swigging their Martin drink and taking a gel? Don't mm-hmm. we see that? Yes. It's an illusion. They're, they're really taking the gel, but they just warmed up. They might've warmed up a couple of miles and they've already been moving for 20 minutes. Their insulin is already plateaued. They can take a gel. But for most runners who are, run, who are running a marathon, adding a two or three mile warm up is not a good idea because they're just running 26 miles is enough to max out their body. Mm-hmm. If you're fit enough to be able to run three easy miles and then race a marathon, by all means, do it and then take some gels right before the gun goes off. Fine. But unless you're that fit and can do that, don't do it. Okay. We, okay, we, did, ten, we did 10 minutes and we took half a gel. It's no, it's, it's almost good. <laughs> it's almost pretty good. good. <laughs> pretty, pretty awesome. I love it. It's good. Well, I mean, I'm really fascinated now to hear what you have to say about nutrition, but maybe what I will just start with is... Um, uh, you, so you talk about in one of the sections about, uh, a famous, um, guy named David Sinclair, and he does research on anti-aging and I've heard of him because I think I've saw, seen some of his Ted talks and you talk about, um, NAD plus, uh, which is, which is helpful in our bodies. And so you did talk about a supplement that people can't get their hands on because it's being investigated, um, for a potential new drug. But you also said that you can incorporate some foods into your diet that will have the right precursors to NAD plus um, so that you can like create more in your body. Um, and yeah. there's a list of foods that is like cucumbers and avocados and cabbage and uh, most of them are vegetables. But um, so, you know, how beneficial is it to incorporate these foods and um and if there's anything else that you think that runners consistently do terribly with their nutrition, uh, definitely call yeah. us out on that. This is such a big conversation that unfortunately, unless I'd be happy to dive deep with this into you, it's where I'm most passionate and it is where most improvement can happen. Um, let me preface this real quick by saying um, one of the stories in the book is of my runner, Brett, who took 55 minutes off of his marathon in nine weeks. And he was no slowpoke. He wasn't going from seven hours to six, whatever. He was. He started at a two, uh, 358 and he got down to a 303. In nine weeks, how do you take that much time off? Yes, he used the triphasic model, but he overhauled his nutrition. The, uh, again and again and again and again, this is what my runners are doing. I've got a guy who just took a minute off of his 10K one week into base training, not because he had that much time to get the workouts in, but because he changed his nutrition, he lost six and a half pounds in one week. He's now down 12 pounds uh, after three weeks. So 
when we talk about nutrition, this is a big topic that, that I can't give you cliff notes on because it'll open more questions than it answers. I'd be happy to talk with you after this or do another podcast with you or whatever. But let me try to answer a little bit of the uh, NAD, NMN. Um, this is not, you can get the pill, okay? I have it right over there. I can show it to you if you want. Um, Metro Biotech um, Life Force is the brand. Metro Biotech is the company. You can get it. It's NMN in a crystallized version, which does not degrade in the bottle, which virtually all other, in the book, I talk about six randomly tested bottles of NMN that were taken from supplement stores. All six of the six had a zero NMN in them. Okay. And just, just for our listeners, NMN is uh, nicotinamide, nicotinamide, nicotinamide mononucleotide. I'll clarify if you want more, but essentially, yes, NMN, NAD plus, not NMN, is a, is a component used in the metabolism of turning, we take oxygen and we take sugar and we essentially turn it into energy. And there's subtleties to that. You can turn mm -hmm. fat into energy too. But in that process, there's another input that's really needed. And that is NAD plus. Without NAD plus, you're not going to that the Krebs cycle is what creates that ATP. Without NAD+, ain't no Krebs cycle happening, baby. So it's as important as the oxygen and the fuel in terms of making energy. It's as important. Essentially, that's what it is. So if you want to improve your NAD, you can't take orally NAD. It's too big of a molecule. You can't absorb it. So we take a precursor to it, NMN. You can also take, there's debate on this if you want to take NMN or NR, nicotinamide or riboside. I give the evidence of that in the book. Whatever, pick mm -hmm. which one you want. You take one of those, they're a precursor to NMN and then you, you build the NMN, sorry, the NAD in your body. So you don't need to worry about this, almost everybody, unless you're training at a very high level or if you're approaching or over the age of 50. Once you hit age 50, NAD goes off a cliff. And this is a driver of aging, cellular aging, which is what aging is, happens in, in the cell. So we want to take, want to maximize our NAD plus. How do we do that? You can take a supplement, but supplements are always, in my opinion, always inferior to eating a food. Mm -hmm. So I list out for you a number of foods that will contribute to your production of NAD plus. And I'll say this to all the listeners here. Don't worry about what those specific foods are because I'm not going to, even though it's listed in the book, like take this and take this, um, throw it all in the garbage. What you need to know is plants contain all the things that you need. They contain the enzymes, the macronutrients in the proper ratio with the water that has been distilled from through the roots of the plant, through the cells of the plant. They contain the fiber that you need, everything that you need, all of the micronutrients that you need. They're all in there. And don't make, if you do one thing, if you take one thing away from, from my message here to improve your performance dramatically, it would be it drastically increase the amount of plants that you're eating in your diet, period. You can take that. We can dissect that in a hundred different ways, but that's like an essential component of this. And if you eat the plants raw, i.e. not cooked, canned equals cooked as well. Not cooked where heat, when you add heat, you degrade the enzymes. The enzymes mm -hmm. are proteins and the enzymes denature above 114 degrees. So you must eat plants at least some of them raw. When you do that, you're going to get all the precursors to the NAD that you need with the enzymes to break down the components of the plant into this constituents of NAD among a myriad, a symphony of other benefits that you're going to get. 
which, which would be a lot to go into right here. Let me just uh, plug in, not my own work, but let me plug a couple of pieces of work that you people may enjoy. Um, how not to, here's some books, How Not to Die by Michael Greger and How Not to Die Yet by Michael Greger. He also has a YouTube channel that is outstanding. It's called nutritionfacts.org. I'm a big fan of his. He has uh, 200 doctors who work for him full-time and all they do is they read every year, they read every issue of every peer-reviewed um, journal on nutrition, every single one. And he's his whole team and he, he as a nonprofit, as a tribute to his grandmother, he he uh, creates this channel. Check out nutritionfacts.org. This is one of the greatest sources that you could get for nutrition. Um, I digress. I'm very passionate about this. I could go forever. Let me stop there because otherwise you'll, you'll never get me to stop. I am writing down nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Michael Greger, nutritionfacts.org. Subscribe to that channel and grab his book. He's got two books, How Not to Die, How Not to Diet. He's got one coming out this Christmas called How Not to Age as well. Um, as far as I'm concerned, he's the authority in reporting. He's not doing the research. He's reporting on the evidence-based peer-reviewed research at a higher level than anybody else on the planet. This is what he does. It's a passion project, full-time, very good at this. So basically from our running point of view, um, as we get in, even more important, as we get older, we should be paying good attention to our diet in terms of raw fruit and vegetables to help us. For the most part, I would agree, but I think there's a, an, a dire error in that, in that statement. And that would be, especially as we get older, because okay, it's like, it's too late. If we wait until we have a disease, until we have an ill health, you can yeah. only do so much to turn it around okay. and you can but starting now is the best. A lot of times yeah. we start when we have the heart attack or when, yeah. whatever, start mm -hmm. now. Easier said than done. A lot of people won't um, for a number of reasons. This, this, is, this is a deep conversation here, but eat plants now to the exclusion of everything else, to the degree to which you see fit. And if you don't want to eat them to the exclusion of everything else, you don't have to for sure. But to the degree to which you do that, wherever you want to fall in the in-between, I encourage um, people to consider moving more into that. T totally different nutrition track, but still nutrition. Uh, molten yeah. gels. We we use molten yeah. gels for our for our race uh, just recently. Um, I got the, if I summarize it correctly, reading the book, what you're telling me is that Morton gels are kind of a, a very sneaky sort of Trojan horse type arrangement for sneaking yeah. sugar quickly passed through your stomach without your stomach yes. realizing that it's got sugar in it and then holding it up. It sort of sneaks it past by encapsulating it in this alginate. Is that true? Or is that just a nice theory yeah. that Morton would it's, like us to believe? Well, I haven't used a microscope in the stomach to look at that acid and see if that hydrogel is in there. But yeah. I can tell you that um, Kipchoge uses it, Bekele use it, and Bekele uses it, and they're the two fastest marathoners of all time. Well, I guess now Kelvin Kipton. Yeah. But um, good enough for Kipchoge, <laughs> good enough for many runners. Um, yeah. there, there's, there's two things yeah. to say about Martin. It is a proprietary, it's not like another sports drink. It's not the technology of the sugar that they're putting in there. It's not the mix of the sugars. That's not what Martin is. It's not like Gatorade versus Powerade versus Tailwind. Yeah. Versus, it's not like that. It's a different delivery mechanism for those, just yeah. as you said. Just as you said. What it does is it allows a blob of, that's in, that has a lot of sugar in it to move through 
the stomach to the intestine and then get digested, almost delayed and unleashed exactly like a Trojan horse. I don't know how good this is for your health. I don't know. But in the short term for delivering sugar to the working muscles in a race, mm-hmm. it seems to work Great really me. well. But here's um, here's something that I don't use Martin anymore. I used to. I don't use it now because if you look at the, the, um, the makeup of orange juice, you know, we could juice a lot of different vegetables and fruits. But if you look at orange juice, you get the same ratio of glucose to fructose and you get the same blood sugar response to fresh, not pasteurized orange juice, fresh orange juice as you do to Martin. And so what I'm saying here is you can have fresh, fresh orange juice as well, as opposed to a powder from Martin. They're both going to have an improvement for you, but the orange juice also has enzymes, which is going to help digest as opposed to require energy to digest. It also has water that is in its whole plant form as opposed to tap water or whatever that you're adding to it. Um, et cetera. It's not made in a lab. It's not a white powder. So use Martin. If you like a lot of my runners use it. One of my top marathoners, a guy who's 52 now, and he's going for a sub 240 at Chicago this coming weekend, um, uses Martin works well for him. It works well for a lot of runners. Kipchoge, Bikela use it. I think runners aren't going to go wrong with it. It's a great product, but I think there's no reason not to be eating foods of this earth as opposed to powders in a, in a package when we can. Okay, good message. Um, I would mm-hmm. quote uh, uh, Coach Jonathan Kane from uh, one of our previous um, uh, podcasts. He says, um, the plural of anecdote is not data. And um, probably, you know, what we would want to what we'd want to see is real data coming out of studies on Molten. Um, what we have is anecdotal evidence of, of the use of it. And a nice story created by the fact that we understand what an alginate gel is and how it works. Um, um, I was just wondering if you had anything else to add to that. And what you did have to add is that orange juice is better because it's more natural. Absolutely. I can tell you I've run my PR in the 50K, the 50 mile and the 100 mile all off of 100% pure juice, uh, 12 hour as well. Um, this past April, I did a 12-hour race. I broke the course record. Got second place. The guy, first place guy passed me also broke the course, course record. I did that one off of all watermelon juice and some grapefruit juice. Um, I run really well off of it. There's a lot of runners who do. And maybe we can dive into that later. But what I will say is, if um, you're right, anecdotes, but anecdotes from some of the greatest runners and take it with a metaphoric pinch of salt. Do whatever you like. But um, what is true with the, the science on it is that We don't want to take in just glucose. Glucose and fructose in a combination of a certain ratio is, well, so you have, imagine that there's a highway that has four lanes of traffic and we're trying to get the most amount of cars to the rock concert, whatever. And so Mm -hmm. we're flying down that highway and there's a capacity and this is glucose delivery to the muscles. You can only get so many cars going down that highway, but then we can add a secondary road. There's one lane and it goes also to the concert and that's fructose. It takes a different path but it goes to the same place. So if you take just glucose, which um, anyway, if you just take one form of sugar, you're going to get a certain amount of sugar delivery to your muscles. But if you take glucose and fructose, you're going to max out one and still be able to get more sugar in through the back door. Yeah. So you do want a ratio of glucose to fructose. Martin does give that ratio of glucose to fructose, but so do some other sports supplements, such as many of them, such as uh, I believe scratch. I'm not sure tailwind. Um, scratch, I believe. Yeah. Um, a lot of them do. A lot of them do. But we do want that combination there. But guess what? 
what foods have glucose and fructose combined? Uh, fruits. Fructose is fruit sugar. Banana has glucose and fructose. Orange has glucose and fructose. It's as if those foods were made for performance. So however you want to get them, just get it different kinds of sugar, specifically glucose and fructose. Other forms of sugar are going to need to be converted to one of those before they're delivered. So however you get them, just get them. I recommend whole foods when possible. Okay. I think Sounds we're probably going to so have to sort of think about wrapping up because uh, okay. we're going to we're going to run out of tape. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I guess um, first thing is, uh, is there any specific place that you want to direct listeners to get a copy of your book, or anywhere is fine? Um, Amazon is good. Perfect. Um, you can. It's on Amazon. You can get Kindle. You can also get the audiobook, which I recorded myself um it's of course on audible uh those are the places to get it right now yeah great you can go to run 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 elitebook.com we'll give you access to all of those as well as uh, once you get the book there's a bunch of bonuses video bonuses training pace calculators um workshops that we do together mindset exercises journaling exercises done live together um all included with the book and if people want to follow up if they're intrigued by uh Andrew Snow and, and run, the Run Elite system, uh, uh, how can they get in contact with you or can they get in contact with you? Sure. So the way I don't work with, um, you can't just enroll with coaching with me. Um, the reason is because I give a result guarantee, which means if you don't get your result, you don't pay. Yay. But in order to do that, we need to have a conversation. We do an interview. So if, um, if you'd like to learn more, go to my website, which is andrewsnowcoaching.com. And there you will see a link to my free training. There's a 50 minute training that I have that I call the three shifts that elite runners make that you probably haven't yet. And we talk about how to start moving your training into a superior, sort of what we talked about here today with mindset, with training structure. I break down the training structure for you and it just gives it all to you for free. And then from there, you can follow the breadcrumbs. It, it's, it invites you to fill out an application with us and talk with us if you want. But the beauty of that is that you know what this is all about after you go through that training and you know if you want to work with us. And then we get on the phone and we see if we're a good match. And that's how I work with people. I do have a, a program that you can get without doing that as well, but it's only available twice per year. It's called the Running Elite Academy. And that is a little bit more open to the public. You can also find that through my website, andrewsnowcoaching.com. Okay. Um, I, actually, this, I actually listened to your video uh, yesterday as a, as a precursor. Oh, the, the, web, the webinar? Yeah. Okay. About cool. about your 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 three factors, and we've talked about them basically. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, from a mindset point of view, I haven't mentioned it, but before we close, I, I need to mention it because I've been telling everybody about it since I read the book. Um, yeah. And they say, "Oh, what book are you reading now, Alan?" So oh, I'm reading "Run Elite" by Andrew Snow. Um, it, it opens on mindset, and let me tell you a story about the James Bond version of running. Pretend you're James Bond and you have to run to save your family from being dipped into a vat of acid. But what you've got to do is you've got to get one mile to switch the off switch before they fall into the acid. But the only problem is you've got to run that mile 10 seconds quicker than your current PR. Now, are you motivated? So this is Could talking about it? mindset change. So, so, and, and this is what you say in the book. And I thought it, it really captures the imagination. It's a good, it's a good parable. And now 
let's do another one where you're James Bond, but you have three months to train before you have to run that mile. What's your attitude going to be about that training? Are you going to go, oh, it's raining. I don't think I'll go out. Um, oh, um, no. The wind is gonna... blowing in the wrong direction. Yeah, oh, I feel like watching. I'm TV. too old, but yeah. I'm sick, but I don't have time. Yeah. I'm tired. My boss yeah. is really riding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an extreme example, but it's it's a good paradigm shifting thinking process, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, the way the reason I say that is because if you should, I call it shooting all over yourself. Okay? Yeah. If you should, I should train. You're not gonna. Yeah. If you must train, well, and your kids being lowered in a battery acid, you must save them, right? So it's an extreme example just to highlight. Turn mm -hmm. your should into a must, and there's no yeah. willpower needed. There's no discipline needed. When you should become a must, how do you turn a should into a must? That's the art of mindset and personal development, is it not? How do we turn something that we should do into something we must do, we will do, and see it as done? That is mindset, that process of shifting into that. And um, simply put, making a, and this is maybe a good closing quote for me to say here. Um, the way that that's done, simply put, is making a decision. And a real decision is measured by the fact that you've taken a new action. And without a new action, you haven't truly decided. It's just a goal. It's just wishful thinking. So and when you make a real decision, you decide you're going to save your family from the battery acid, right? So it's decided you, you don't need motivation. You don't need anything. It's done. Or you die trying. Simply making the decision is the distinguishing factor between whether you might do it, you should do it, or whether it's done and you'll find a way. Because when you decide you're going to do it, if you get injured, it doesn't matter. You find a way to cross train. If there's a hailstorm, it doesn't matter. You reroute and you do a different race. It doesn't matter. Nothing can stand in your way if you see it as done and you've decided that it's done. Great closing words. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay, run a leap by Andrew Snow. Train smart. Peak at the right time. I love the process. So I think this is a fresh and innovative take on training for, for a marathon. It's given us a lot of food for thought, particularly because we're really hot at just having completed a marathon and, and thinking about what to do next. I think it's more designed for the committed marathoner who's been through a few experiences. So you've got some sort of data that you can bring to the, to the reading of the book, but the ideas and approaches are well thought through and, and well justified in terms of, you know, the, there's a massive number of references of articles, et cetera, in the, in the back. So if you heard anything today and you thought, oh, I'm not too sure about that, it's well backed up with with uh, with you know a, a host of studies and practices from other great coaches, as well as examples and practices from other great runners, uh, as well as you know literature references, including actual training logs of uh, superior athletes as well. Something we didn't mention: the book has seven appendices and a list of bonus material, which you did to just touch on there. Um, so it's the gift that keeps on giving from that point of view. Um, after you get finished the book, there, there's, there's a bunch of useful appendices in the back. Very cool at the end as well, which is unusual, is a call to action. I didn't do the actual push-ups with you, Andrew. Andrew, uh, um, while you were writing the book, you were doing push-ups and calling us to action. But I did do a couple of lunges. So I didn't get down on the ground, but I did. I did. Take your call to action seriously. So that was fun. I guess uh, I'll be echoing a little bit of what Alan said with um, that, you know, some of the information 
uh, and training is advanced. And so it's maybe not a book for a beginner to design their very first training plan, but um, still, you know, it could be read by any runner because it does explain some nuances of training and it calls out some things that are a bit misunderstood by non-elite runners. Uh, for example, about, you know, we talked about the gel and not taking it at the start line, even though the elites do take it at the start line and why it's different for um, for people that are maybe doing their first marathon. Uh, also, I mean, you know, in, in that way of uh, being a book that any runner can read and get something out of, it, it's still helpful for for anybody just because, you know, it, um, it does explain like base training. And obviously, if you're a beginner, then and base training should be uh, what you do the most of. Uh, also, the, it's um, the reading is is easy to understand. So there's like a good flow of information from one topic to another. And there's lots of examples of athletes that Andrew has coached and even elite athletes. So uh, it's fun to to learn about some of the athletes that he's coached because they're you know like me and you, um, like his. Uh, 47 year old marathoner that ended up incorporating over distance runs and then uh, PR'd by, I think it was, I don't know, seven minutes or something like that. And he, he was already a sub three hour marathoner. So uh, quite impressive. Uh, there's a lot of uh, practical information that you can use to build your own training plan. But uh I think also you can just use the information a little bit like me and Alan are planning to use it to maybe tweak the training plans that we were maybe already doing. So um be interested know, to interesting to see how we tweak our mindset. I guess to we'll have throw to throw it out and get a new one. <laughs> yeah, I think we might as well just get a new one for that. <laughs> maybe what we need to do, Alan, is put a six or 12 week base training right in front of our 12 week that we did at marathon training. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, that's a thought for another episode, but um, also I'll just mention the, the cover art. So I really like the cover art. It's uh it's just a runner that looks like he's very fast black and white cover with some uh, teal colored writing. And um, also the division of the information was was perfect because you have the mindset first and it kind of like helps you dive in because you, you know, it starts with Elliot Kipchoge's mindset, which we're all a fan of. The uh, supporting material is also fantastic. I mean, if, um, you know, I, I find that sometimes we're reading books and we're like, oh, you know, I wish I could see a video about that. Well, Andrew has created some for us. So great book. All in all, great stuff. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your efforts, Andrew. And uh, we look forward to uh, following uh, uh, your book in more practical detail uh, in terms of trying to put some of the stuff into action. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you today to Andrew for sending us copies of his book and spending a lot of time with us today. And you can tell how passionate he is about the subject, that's for sure. If you'd like to leave us feedback about how we can improve the podcast or you want to suggest a book you'd like us to review, please leave us a comment on social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are reviews underscore running. I guess we should be starting to say X now, but I can't do that. Mm, I know. Sounds so weird. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes as they are released, or you can just subscribe to us on your favorite streaming platform. 
please, if you haven't, could you just go to uh, Apple if you do listen to our podcast on Apple and leave us a little review saying uh, good or neat or whatever and some stars because that, that kind of helps us. Or if you want to help us in different ways because you're not an Apple user, uh, um, tell a running partner about our, our podcast so we can get it spreading around. We're also on a site called Buy Me A Coffee where you can see all kinds of things uh, all you've got to do is register on Buy Me A Coffee free of charge and you can see uh, um, all sorts of additional materials uh, that are not necessarily related to books all the time. And for sure, pretty soon, if it's not already there, there should be uh, uh, Liz and I discussing our post-mortem on our latest marathon effort. That's all for now for running from Running Book Reviews. Bye. Bye.